Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The multiverse theory, the concept that our universe is but one of many, one of perhaps an infinite number of other universes. And in those other universes, there are other Earths, other yous, and other me's. Maybe you dropped out of college to take a job and then later regretted it in this world. What if there's another world with another you identical up until that point who then didn't do that? Another you that from that point on lived a new parallel reality to yours. Perhaps in some parallel universe, this topic did not win the Patreon vote. Maybe I'm talking about the runner-up topic right now, Egyptian gods in some other world, making King Tut and Raw jokes. The concept of the multiverse or multiverse theory, the idea of multiple or endless universes running alongside ours simultaneously is nothing new. It's been a part of human storytelling and philosophies for centuries. It's been a, some part of scientific speculation for about as long as there has been science. Is it proven? Are there definitely other universes out there? Nah. Is it possible? Do a lot of very intelligent people believe very strongly in the concept of a multiverse? Yes. In this episode of Time Suck, we're going to learn about some of the giants of science's past on whose shoulders much of modern society stands today. We'll also track a lot of the uh, history of cosmology, the study of the structure and evolution of the universe starting over 3,000 years ago, running up to today. The concept of the multiverse has captured the imagination of millions for good reason. It's super cool to think about other worlds like ours. Where are they? Could we ever access them? Thoughts like these continue to inspire the science-minded and fans of sci-fi and fantasy, meat sacks who enjoy thinking complicated thoughts about the nature of our reality or multiple realities. Time now to jump into a very black hole, the upside down, the midnight gospel, Rick and Morty thought-provoking, brain-busting edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod and happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I hope it is a happy Monday for you. I hope you're holding up, persevering, 
thriving or at least surviving until it's time again to thrive. Thanks for choosing to go on a little mind adventure with me today. I'm Dan Cummins, Suckstradamus, Master Mushmouth, Tiny Mouth Professional Speaker, a hopeful tamer of Lucifina, and you are listening to Time Suck. Praise Bojangles, glory be to Triple M, who's doing fine because Michael motherfucking McDonald is immortal. Uh, thank you for the continued ratings and reviews. Always appreciate it. Thanks for continuing to send in updates to Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. We got some great updates to go over in today's Time Sucker updates. And, and thanks to so many of you for checking out Get Out of Here Devil, my new one hour special of stand up on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, cable on demand, and elsewhere. It, it's also out on audio, Spotify, Pandora, you know, uh, iTunes, and more. Google Play. Appreciate you posting about it. If you haven't seen it or listened, please do. Uh, really proud of how it turned out. Uh, the Toxic Thoughts Tour remains, of course, uh, on hold, TBD. Can't wait to let you know when I will be back on the road with some certainty. Uh, also, uh, to any of our medical nerd listeners, I know we have a lot. Uh, hurry up, all right? Please hurry up and magically make COVID-19 go away. We know you can do it. Get rid of, uh, you know, even worse diseases like uh, cancer while you're at it, all right? Uh, I've been thinking about this, and if you don't cure it all soon— Here's what I propose. I propose we start rounding up valedictorians and heads of neurosurgery and epidemiology professors and other nerds, and we start publicly executing a thousand a day, all right? Maybe then you work a little faster. I know you fucking nerds can do it, so if we need to put on a little nerd purge, you know, to give you some proper motivation, then that's what we got to do, all right? I don't like I don't like it, but it feels reasonable. Stop fucking around. Stop playing with your beakers and drawing dicks on whiteboards and, you know, get your acts together. I kid, JK. Uh, thank you, actually, medical professionals, for uh, for being the brave uh, soldiers fighting this uh, pandemic right now. Do appreciate you, but but seriously, cure it. You know, just fucking stop, stop dicking around. Uh, new charity time. Hail Nimrod. Been thinking a lot about the military lately. Many returned from uh, serving overseas or completed their service on bases here in the States only to find themselves in the middle of an economic shit show thanks to our new normal. And we want to help here at Time Sucks. So we're giving our monthly Patreon donation of $5,400 to the PenFed Foundation. PenFed was the first national veterans organization to launch its COVID-19 relief program for emergency financial assistance in March. The response to the program is uh, with uh, over 6,000 applications and you know just the first four days was overwhelming. They need money to help as many people as they can. They provide financial assistance to veterans and veterans only. The mission of the PenFed Foundation for Military Heroes is to empower military service members, veterans in their communities with the skills and resources to realize financial stability and opportunity. They help veterans buy homes, go to school, help them uh, pay their bills when times get tough, like right now. So go to penfedfoundation.org to find out more. Link in the episode description. And from the bottom of my heart, uh, all of our hearts here, truly, truly thank you for your service. Uh, It's not just some nice shit to say. uh, We mean it. Now, uh, let's get weird. New Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium Tea is in the Bad Magic merch store. Ain't that right, Sasparilla's Spokemaster? Easy girl, e- e- easy girl, easy. Does Don Doberman have a shirt for Doggone Don's Puppy Play Megastore Butt Dungeon and Kettle? No, he does not. He's a piece of shit and an embarrassment to the Quad State area. So support Captain Whiskerhorn's Pony Play Emporium by grabbing that tea in the Bad Magic Merch Store at badmagicmerch.com. Yeah, Sasparilla, let's ride, ride like the wind. And, uh, and that's all the announcements. So, so there you go. <laughs> Let's get into this crazy science. Oh, jeez. Gosh dang. All right, let's seriously talk about some science, Meat Sacks. 
Without science, the possibility of the multiverse means no more than the possibility of seeing Sasquatch riding a unicorn uh, on your way to the grocery store. It's just pure, well, you know, I thought of it, so it might be true. Non-scientific speculation. Modern science named the scientific method, uh, one could argue, has for sure changed our world for the better. It doesn't just lead to thoughts of like the multiverse. It leads to a lot of very real practical things. Uh, it's made our life better, um, I think, more than just about anything else I could think of. Uh, you know, think about it. Since the advent of modern science, our lifespans have doubled. Our medicines reduce pain and suffering far more than at any other point in history, right? Gone are the days of whiskey, laudanum, saw. And you know, our technological amenities make human prosperity easier, easier to achieve for the common man or woman. Air conditioning now allows us to not have an ass crack full of sweat when it's 103 outside and heavy humidity. Air conditioning allows us to snuggle up under some blankets in a cool room when it's 103 degrees outside with heavy humidity. So thank you, Willis Carrier. Willis invented the first modern air conditioner in New York, 1902. Hot showers, antibacterial soap, deodorant, lotion. For a few bucks, you can clean off and lotion up and feel more luxurious than royalty felt just a few centuries ago. Amazing. So thank you, William Feedham, for inventing the first modern shower in England in 1767. Online shopping. You can shop from stores around the world from the comfort of your living room. You can order gourmet, pre-made, frozen, organic meals. Have them dropped off at your damn door. Throw them in the microwave for lunch or dinner. You know, be eating a glorious meal in four minutes. And you can do that as a working class person, not some robber baron or, you know, wealthy industrialist. So thank you, Tim Berners-Lee, for inventing the World Wide Web and the first web browser, the version of the internet that makes online shopping possible in England in 1990. You can talk to friends around the world and see their faces, talk face to virtual face in real time, no waiting months for that letter you wrote with a damn quill to float back across the ocean. You can video conference through apps like FaceTime, Skype, Zoom on your phone. Thank you, Martin Cooper, for inventing the first handheld cellular phone in Illinois in 1973, a phone that didn't reach the market until 1983. You can order prescription medicine online now, medicine that will knock out diseases that would have killed emperors in centuries past. Thank you, Alexander Fleming, for finding penicillin, the first true antibiotic in 1928 in London. Hail Nimrod, you beautiful bastards. You can even order a fleshlight now and jerk off into a sex toy slash creepy flashlight tube that I've heard feels a lot like a real vagina, uh, you know, uh, even though your hand probably works fine, and then you can pop out the fake vagina sleeve and wash it in the sink while you wonder how your life has sunk into this point. You couldn't feel that kind of shame in 1994 because masturbation visionary Steve Shubin didn't invent that shit until 1995. So thank you, Steve. But seriously, I could go on and on. Listing amenities we enjoy because of, uh, you know, either directly or indirectly various types of scientists making discoveries that continually change our lives for the better. And interestingly, uh, it wasn't a hive mind or a group effort that made many of the leaves forwarded in understanding possible. You know, in most cases, individuals with a variety of different motivations followed their natural scientific curiosities, put in uh, thousands and thousands of hours of study to understand the science of their day, thousands of hours you know, a, a more pushing beyond the boundaries of the knowledge of their day to take life forward. And things keep pushing forward because when one scientific thinker makes a major breakthrough, other individuals expand on that research and make more breakthroughs. In many ways, we stand on the shoulders of giants and the view is pretty damn good. So thank you, science. Thank you, scientists. And regarding today's topic, thank you, cosmologists, scientists who study the very nature of the universe, scientists who push to understand that Earth's place in the universe and what the universe is, people who take a scientific look into the nature of our reality, people who have given us the ability to look at least somewhat intelligently into the possibility of extreme ideas like the multiverse theory. 
Before we get into breaking down the multiverse theory, let's look at some individual giants of cosmology that have led us to where we are now. Then we'll get into the science of the multiverse theory and you know, uh, break it down as, as well as a non-scientist like myself uh, can. We'll start by heading to ancient Greece, Greece and uh, meeting a mythical man, early questioner of the cosmos named Pythagoras, who lived from 582 BCE to 496 BCE. When it came to astronomy and understanding the nature of the universe, Pythagoras and his devoted student followers were fascinated by the possible numerical relations of the planets, the moon, and the sun. They believed that the celestial spheres of the planets aligned to produce a harmony called the music of the spheres. This early universe speculation uh, would be re-examined many centuries later by Johannes Kepler in his attempt to formulate a model of the solar system in his work, The Harmony of the Worlds. Pythagoras believed that the earth itself was in motion. This was a radically new idea. Pythagoras was ahead of his time, pushing huge advancements in mathematics as well, uh, notably in the area of geometry. He's often called uh, the world's first true mathematician, thought of uh, to have been the first to establish that the sum of the angles of a triangle is equal to two right angles and that for a you know, right-angled triangle, the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares in the other two sides. And why is geometry important? So many ways. Geometric principles have been applied to art. Former suck subject Da Vinci wouldn't have been able to paint the balanced masterpieces he did without understanding geometry. Geometric understanding has allowed for huge advancements in architecture, engineering, robotics, astronomy, sculpture, space, nature, sports, machines, cars, and much more. So thanks, Pythagoras. And Pythagoras was also, uh, like a lot of really intellectually gifted people, fucking weirdo. Uh, his followers weren't normal students. They were cult members, basically. You know, new members were forbidden from speaking for the first five years of membership under learning uh, from Pythagoras. Man, five years without speaking. I don't want to study under anyone that badly. If I knew you could teach me how to like live forever, travel between dimensions, shoot fire with my mind, maybe travel into the future, have a secret magic cash machine in my basement that made real money, all right, I'll shut the fuck up for five years. But if you try and back out of that deal, you know, like four years in, I'm gonna kill you. Uh, Pythagoras weirded out a lot of his fellow Greeks to the point that his house was burned down by a scared and angry mob. He was chased out of town by people fearing his mystic command over his followers and the sacredness of numbers. And why did people freak out, you know, uh, really? Well, he, his followers, did, they did some weird stuff. Uh, when he and his followers would solve a new equation, they'd sacrifice an ox to the gods. Uh, they would literally pray to the number 10. They considered the number 10 to be divine. Uh, Pythagoras, his, his followers came to think that he was a god. Strange legends spread about him. Uh, one of the strangest is that he had a golden thigh, which sounds painful, doesn't sound flexible. Guy of tight hamstrings, but I feel like they'd be way tighter if I had golden thighs. Uh, and according to obvious legend, when he once showed his golden thigh to a priest, he was given a magical dart to let him fly over mountains, expel diseases, and calm storms. Greeks. They believe a lot of weird shit. Uh, I wish I had a magical dart. Golden thigh sounds shitty, but golden dart, you know, whatever sounds pretty awesome. Or magic dart, excuse me. Uh, Pythagoras was uh, also super odd when it came to beans. Maybe the weirdest guy when it came to beans I've ever read about. And you heard that right, beans, B-E-A-N-S. He had a lot of rules he expected his followers to obey. And one of them was that you don't ever, I mean ever, touch anyone's fava beans. You stay away from the fucking fava beans, put them down. He seriously thought beans hurt your soul. He knew that beans gave you gas. <laughs> and this mathematical genius and early cosmologist thought that when you farted, you could fart out a piece of your soul. <laughs> it could weaken you. Uh-huh. I don't worry about farts uh, uh, weakening me. 
I, I definitely think they can weaken others like around though. You know, like they, they're not gonna weaken you if you're farting, but they're gonna, they're gonna weaken people around you. Like my dog, Ginger, farts a lot. And I definitely don't feel like I'm at full strength when she butt blasts uh, my face in bed. Pythagoras also thought that the beans themselves had souls. Dude had a lot of bean beliefs. He thought the beans contained the souls of the dead inside of them. And he once told his followers, quote, eating fava beans and gnawing on the heads of one's parents are one and the same. Okay. Uh, so while he was really good at math, he was really bad at understanding beans. Uh, to be fair to him, he did live a long time ago when everyone believed crazy shit because the world didn't have enough science in it. And, and seriously, not kidding about the bean stuff. I know that sounds like one of the lies I would tell. No, that was, that was Pythagoras. Uh, now let's fast forward uh, over half a millennia to another Greek, Ptolemaeus. Claudius Ptolemaeus, known in English as uh, Ptolemy, was a Greek geographer astronomer and astrologer who probably lived and worked in Alexandria, Egypt, born around 100 CE. No one knows for certain if he was related to the Ptolemy dynasty that ruled Egypt, that was loaded with incest and led to Cleopatra that we learned about many sucks ago. He might, he might have been. He might have boned a sister or three, very different times. Uh, Ptolemy was the author of the astronomical uh, uh, treatise known as the uh, Almagest, aka the Great Treatise. It was preserved like most of classical Greek science in Arabic manuscripts and only finally made available in Latin translation in the 12th century. In this work, one of the most influential books of antiquity, Ptolemy compiled the astronomical, astronomical, there we go, knowledge of the ancient Greek and Babylonian world. He relied mainly on the work of Hipparchus of three centuries earlier. Ptolemy formulated a geocentric model of the solar system explaining the motions of the heavens in which the earth was the center of the universe all other celestial bodies rotated around it, which remained the generally accepted model in the Western and Arab worlds until it was overthrown uh, by the uh, Copernican Revolution after Galileo and Copernicus brought a belief, uh, you know, uh, back that the planets orbited the sun, heliocentrism, to Europe centuries later. Unfortunately, for entertainment value, very little is known about Ptolemy's personal life, so we don't have any weird stories about him. But just like he may have been incestuous, he may have also once wore a necklace with a bag of mouse bones around his neck as a kid because that's what ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptians used to do to cure bedwetting. That's what they thought cured bedwetting is, uh, you know, for a while, was having a little necklace of mouse bones hanging around your neck. Uh, I, wonder if that, I wonder if that works. That'd be so fucking weird if it worked. Uh, they did a lot of other things considered strange by today's standards of normalcy. So he most likely did a lot of stuff uh, we'd think of as odd. Now let's jump uh, up to another early cosmologist, one of the most famous nerds in history, Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish astronomer. <laughs> yeah, right. Nice try, Al Gore. What are you trying to trick me with your dark internet sorcery? That's clearly some fake news propaganda pushed by Al Gore and the filthy Poles paying Al Gore to serve their internet agendas. There's no way someone famous for being smart could also be Polish. Come on. If you believe Copernicus was Polish, I bet you also believe that Polish people have souls or that they don't eat many of their own babies or that they're not created by the devil. Uh, kidding, of course. Copernicus really was Polish. An incredibly good chunk of his formal education occurred in Poland, which I find fascinating because I didn't, I didn't know that Poland had schools. And I'll stop now. He learned a lot in Poland. Then he got into cosmology while studying in Italy. He was a mathematician, economist, cosmologist who developed a heliocentric, sun-centered theory of the solar system in a form detailed enough to make it scientifically useful. Uh, that model actually had been postulated centuries earlier. More on that later, but he didn't know that. His theory about the sun as the center of the solar system, he thought the sun was close to the center actually, uh, not exactly in the center, is considered uh, the fundamental starting point of modern astronomy and modern science itself, helping to kick off the scientific revolution. It was widely accepted during his day that the earth was the very center of the universe. How could it not be? 
Our planet is the only planet that matters. Suck it, aliens. Uh, His theory affected many other aspects of human life, opening the door to young astronomers everywhere to challenge the facts, never take anything at just face value. Uh, What weird facts are out there about this dude? Uh, Not many, actually. He may have slept with his housekeeper niece. That's the most dirt I could find. As an official in the Catholic Church, Copernicus took a vow of celibacy. He never married, was most likely a virgin, but he may have had at least one romantic relationship. In the late 1530s, the astronomer was in his 60s when Anna Schilling, a woman in her late 40s, began living with him. Schilling may have been related to Copernicus. Some historians think he was her great uncle and she worked as his housekeeper for two years and it was a little bit of a scandal because for some reason, the bishop he worked under admonished Copernicus twice for having Schilling live with him, even telling the astronomer to fire her and writing to other church officials about the matter when he didn't. Uh, if he did do anything, he probably worked hard to keep it quiet so he didn't get killed, you know, in some type of inquisition situation. Another great mind with the folks on the stars who did do a lot of weird shit, a lot of weird shit happened to him, uh, was 16th century luminary Tycho Brahe. Tycho Brahe was a Danish nobleman, plus, uh, you know, well-known as an astronomer, astrologer, and alchemist. Tycho was the preeminent observational astronomer of the pre-telescopic period, and his observations of stellar and planetary positions achieved unparalleled accuracy for their time. And after his death, his records regarding the motion of the planet Mars enabled Kepler to discover the laws of planetary motion, which provided powerful support for the Copernican heliocentric theory of the solar system, since most people still insisted the Earth was for sure the center of the solar system. And I'm not surprised at all. People still insisted that in the 16th century that the earth was uh, still the center. We, we have people who still insist uh, that the earth is flat today, half a millennia later in the 21st century. Tycho proposed a system in which, you know, the planets other than earth orbited the sun while the sun orbited the earth. Seems complicated. Uh, his system provided a safe transition position for astronomers who were dissatisfied with older models, but were reluctant to accept the earth's motion. Also, Tycho was a fucking lunatic. Uh, while he was studying at the University of Rostock in Germany, he got into a heated argument with another space nerd about who was the better mathematician, and he challenged this student, Menderup Parsberg, to a duel. And I don't know how much you know about Menderup Parsberg, but I know literally only one thing. He didn't give a f- he didn't fuck around when it came to space nerd duels, okay? This duel didn't work out well for Bra. Parsberg uh, cut his nose off. Seriously. And this was even more of a bummer in the late 16th century than it would be now. Not saying getting your honker sliced off in a nerd sword duel would be a walk in the park today, but back in the 16th century, it was an especially epic bummer. Hundreds of years before cosmetic surgery was a thing, the best bra could do was to have a brass nose made, and then he used paste to stick a brass nose onto his face every day for the rest of his life. He carried a little bit of extra paste around, right? He had a little jar of paste on his person for the next, you know, 30 plus years. How surreal. He lost his nose in 1566 at the age of 20. He lived until he was 54. So for 34 years, he was pasting a brass nose onto his face every day. Did he think about Mendra Persberg when he put that paste on? Did he think about him every time, you know, he, he caught someone staring, maybe even pointing at his, at his brass snaz? Damn you, Mandarup! Except it'd probably sound more like this. It'd probably sound like, Damn you, man, I'm somebody but my brush nose. I mean, just, you know, trying to be accurate. Uh, poor TBN, man. Tico brass nose. Uh, also once had a pet elk call. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he had a pet. I don't know what it's called. Why did he have a pet elk? Because uh, meth. No, he didn't do meth. Uh, I have no idea why he had a pet elk. Maybe he could, uh, I don't know. 
take off his brass nose and use it like an elk bugle. Some kind of Beastmaster shit. Anyway, this poor animal died one day when Bra let it drink too much beer and it fell down a flight of stairs. What the fuck? <laughs> this is a real story. Tico, Tico, where's your elk? Haven't seen him in weeks. He got drunk, he fell down the stairs. He's a good elk, but he's sober, but he's a real sloppy drunk elk. Some weird conversations. Uh, Tico died a super weird death too. One that had nothing to do with his nose. He, he died from holding his pee in too long. I'm serious. He dined in the presence of the king of Denmark and he drank too much wine and tradition dictated that guests not rise from the table prior to the king rising and pissing yourself in front of the king was, you know, frowned upon. So rather than do either of those things, Bra crossed his legs, held in his pee until he ruptured his bladder and then he got a bladder infection and he died. So a lot of lessons to learn here. You know, don't hold your pee in too long and uh, don't, don't challenge Mendera Persberg. Do a nerd sword deal, duel, and maybe don't let your pet elk get drunk or have a pet elk in the first place or let it ever fucking go around stairs. And he had some serious fortitude to hold in his piss until he ruptured his bladder. Not everybody could do that. I would have pissed myself for sure. Uh, next up, Galileo. Turns out Galileo is more than just the name of a great Indigo Girls song. Uh, Galileo Galilei was a Tuscan astronomer, philosopher, and physicist born in 1564, very closely associated with the rise of the modern scientific you know, uh, thinking. Uh, rise of modern scientific thinking. He was uh, so influential, he's been called the father of observational astronomy, the father of modern physics, the father of the scientific method, and the father of modern science. And he never even got his nose chopped off in, in, in a nerd duel one time, not even a single time in his whole life. His achievements include improving the telescope, a variety of astronomical observations, the first law of motion, and supporting Copernicanism pretty effectively. On January 7th, 1610, Galileo discovered three of Jupiter's four largest moons, Io, Europa, Callisto. You know, uh, Ganymede, the largest moon, he discovered four nights later. It's nuts. He did that shit in 1610, over 80 years before the Salem witch trials, when complete morons were hanging people in Massachusetts because other people had dreams about them being Satan's minions. This dude was looking into the heavens with an ancient telescope and finding Jupiter's moons. Very ahead of his time. He determined that these moons were orbiting the planet since they would occasionally disappear, something he attributed to their movement behind Jupiter correctly. The notion that a planet had smaller planets orbiting it was problematic for the orderly, comprehensive picture of the geocentric model of the universe in which everything circled around Earth. And the church, not happy about his revelations. How dare some little mini-moon planet circle around anything other than almighty Earth? Galileo also noted that Venus exhibited a full set of phases like the moon. The heliocentric model of the solar system developed by Copernicus predicted that all phases would be visible since the orbit of Venus around the sun would cause its illuminated hemisphere to face the earth when it was on the opposite side of the sun and to fade away from the earth when it was on the earth side of the sun. By contrast, the geocentric model of Ptolemy predicted that only crescent and new phases would be seen since Venus was thought to remain between the sun and earth during its orbit around earth. Galileo's observation of the phases of Venus proved that Venus orbited the sun, Copernicus was right, and the church was fucking pissed. For believing this correct notion, the Catholic Church considered him a heretic. He was put on trial during the Roman Inquisition, and he was found vehemently suspect of heresy. Of heresy, heresy, Jesus, bummer. And he was sentenced to house arrest for the remainder of his life, which was over eight years. Uh, and he made numerous other contributions. He may have also been a terrible father. Galileo never married. However, he had three children with Marina Gamba. Two of the children were girls. And when uh, Mariana, 
Yeah, Mary. Uh, yeah, uh, Mary. Uh, sorry, Mariana Gamba. When Mariana died, he never allowed his daughters to marry out of fear that he would have to pay a hefty dowry. So he sent them to a convent, where they ended up becoming nuns. And I bet they spent a lot of their time praying, you know, asking God to help them be less angry with their cheap ass dad. Also, randomly, one of Galileo's middle fingers was removed long after his death. It is on display in Florence, Italy's History of Science Museum. So if you have time and you like looking at old fingers, you can check out his finger. You can think about all the places it might have been. Now, his finger is probably, you know, used scribbling some equations, uh, writing to his angry daughters. He's probably two knuckles deep and, you know, in a, in a hold of your imaginative choosing. Uh, one last giant cosmological mind from centuries past talk about uh, Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler, another key figure in the scientific revolution, was a German astronomer, mathematician, and astrologer, best known for his laws of planetary motion. Like previous astronomers, Kepler initially believed that celestial objects moved in perfect circles. However, after spending 20 years doing calculations with data collected by Tycho Brahe, Kepler concluded that the circular model of planetary motion was inconsistent with that data. Man, 20 years. 20 years of equations to try and figure out if celestial bodies moved in circles or ovals. I don't have that kind of patience. If I can't figure out, you know, what I want, you know, uh, something mathematically to be figured, like if I can't get the get the result I want mathematically in like five minutes of dicking around on a calculator or something, I want to throw my computer into the wall and the vein of my forehead looks like it's going to bust loose. Using Tycho's data, Kepler was able to formulate three laws of planetary motion, now known as Kepler's laws, three laws describing how planets move in ellipses, not circles. Every planet's orbit is an ellipse with the sun at a focus. You know, uh, a line joining the sun and a planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. And then three, the square of a planet's orbital period is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of its orbit. Uh, dude doesn't seem to be uh, have been involved in any major scandals, but his mom was almost burned to the stake because she was thought to be a witch. Just like most of the rest of these guys, he lived in such a weird time to be a science-minded person. A time when superstitious thoughts were taught as fact, they were mainstream, and you could be killed for, you know, heresy if you didn't accept these thoughts as truth. A time when women and sometimes men were burned for being witches. Kepler's brother, Christopher, had gotten into a financial dispute with a woman named Ursula Rheingold. And Ursula, that lying no good bitch, claimed that Kepler's mother, Katharina, had made her sick with an evil brew. And Katharina then vehemently denied doing that because it's crazy and impossible to make an evil brew. Poisonous brew? Okay. Yeah, sure. Evil brew? I got here. The dispute escalated. Katharina was accused of witchcraft. Ursula claimed that she had been instructed in magic by an aunt who had, in fact, been burned alive for sorcery because living in medieval Europe sucked. Uh, there was a witch hunt going on in the region at the time, and Katharina was one of 15 women accused of nefarious sorcery in her, in her town. Johannes Kepler had to take a break from his mathematical studies to prepare an extensive defense for his mother, not, in fact, being a witch. His defense was not totally convincing and Katharina was imprisoned in August 1620, held for 14 months. And then she lived for about a year under constant suspicion of being a witch after that. Somebody who got away with uh, practicing some of the devil's magic and then she died. Weird times to be alive. And there are, of course, many others who helped us move our understanding of the universe forward from centuries past. Uh, thank you, early visionaries, for pushing forward when finding and telling the truth could get you imprisoned or killed and often did. Modern scientific thought owes itself to the contributions of the people I've just mentioned and to so many other great men and women I didn't. From Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, you know, Louis and Marie Pasteur, to Charles Darwin, Niels Bohr, Stephen Hawking, Francis Crick, our world has been forever changed by various innovators and disciplined thinkers. Without these individuals, our understanding of the universe would be vastly different. 
When it comes to our understanding of a possible multiverse, a lot of nerds seem to believe that two 20th century nerds you may have never heard of stand a little taller than the rest when it comes to their level of, you know, what if the universe is way bigger than we ever imagined contributions? Edwin Hubble and Georges Lemaitre. So let's gloss over them before starting to unravel what the multiverse theory is really about. By 1930, some cosmologists started to think that the static, non-evolving model of the universe was unsatisfactory. It didn't answer all their questions. The numbers didn't add up the way they thought they should add up in a static universe. American astronomer Edwin Hubble was an early adopter to the idea that the universe was growing. And yes, the Hubble Space Telescope launched in low Earth orbit in 1990 is named after this guy. Using the world's largest telescope at the time, which was located at Mount Wilson in California, Hubble showed the distant galaxy or showed, you know, that distant galaxies all appeared to be receding from us. What's more, these far-flung galaxies were traveling away from us at speeds proportional to their distances. In other words, the farther they were from us, the faster they were flying away. Hard to comprehend. Makes my brain hurt when I think too long about it. This was a new thought. And combined with the ponderings of another 20th century cosmologist, it would soon lead to thoughts that maybe the universe isn't just expanding away from us. Maybe it's also just one of many of infinite universes. Georges Lemaitre, a Jesuit-educated Belgian Catholic priest, mathematician, astronomer, and professor, used Hubble's findings to draw attention to an early published academic paper of his, in which he explained the relationship between the distance of a galaxy and the recession velocity of that same galaxy. By putting together Hubble's observations with Lemaitre's paper, a majority of astronomers became convinced that the universe was indeed expanding. This revolutionized cosmology and how we see the universe and how we view our place within it. And that leads us to multiverse theory. The multiverse theory states that, as I just said, there may be multiple or even an infinite number of universes, including the universe we consistently experience, that together comp uh, you know, comprise everything that exists the entirety of space, time, matter, and energy, as well as the physical laws and constants that describe them. In this context, multiple universes are often referred to as parallel universes because they exist alongside our own. And how's that for a crazy thought, right? Like what if there is an upside down laying next to our world, kind of like uh, in Stranger Things, you know, the Netflix show. What if the extra dimensional adventures of Rick and Morty isn't just some nonsense that only happens in uh, weird cartoons? What if some space caster named Clancy could own a multiverse simulator, like the, like the character in the Midnight Gospel? Uh, the American philosopher and famous psychologist William James may have been the first person to use the term multiverse in 1895, but he didn't use it to define what we're talking about today. He used the term to describe the human experience, where we all live in a world, you know, he found to be nothing more than plasticity and indifference, a world seemingly controlled by multiple forces. What does that mean exactly? Well, too much, uh, too off topic to dig into here. Multiverse was first used in fiction and in its current physics context by Michael Moorcock in his 1963 sci-fi adventures novella, The Sundered Worlds. Moorcock, mostly known for his character Elric of uh, Melibonet, an emperor, sorcerer, and warrior who lives on an alternative earth known as Melibonet, the white wolf, the prince of ruins, woman slayer, king slayer, god slayer, the thin white duke, and much of Moorcock's work has been based on his concept of the multiverse, a series of parallel universes where Elric, one facet of the eternal champion who has multiple identities across multiple dimensions, fights. The multiverse contains a legion of different versions of Earth in various times, histories, and occasionally sizes. Uh, Moorcock, still alive at the age of 80, and his work has been hugely influential 
on the worlds of fantasy and science fiction. And can I talk about his name for a second? Moore Cock. No wonder he became an author. Reading and writing growing up was probably like, like the only place you could escape the constant taunts. You know, just dipshit playground bullies, chan horrible stuff all the time. Mocock, Mocock, Michael wants Mocock. I hope he has an Uncle Richard. I I, I wonder, <laughs> I'm such a child, but I got so into thinking about like, is there a Richard Moorcock out there? I Googled and there is. There's a Richard Moorcock right now. Uh, nice looking dude, nice looking family uh, in New, uh, New Zealand. A Kiwi living in uh, Gold Coast, Australia. And if you hear this podcast, Richard, please let me know uh, how the name Dick Moorcock affected your childhood. Let me know if you ever asked your parents why in God's name they would name you Richard. Knowing Dick is short for Richard and knowing what your last name is, obviously. In at least one parallel universe, I have to believe that Dick Moorcock has been ruthlessly taunted. Uh, the literary concept of the multiverse also played with a lot in Stephen King's The Dark Tower series. Uh, through that series, it's revealed that many of King's other books take place in parallel worlds and universes, worlds connected to the all world where the Dark Tower exists, the Dark Tower that connects all of the worlds, all of the realities. In moments like this, I wish I could put my creative work on pause and just use all my non-family time to read Stephen King books for a few months. Just love getting lost in King's worlds. Uh, the mainstream scientifically-based idea of the multiverse comes from another one of human history's best science minds, Hugh Everett, an American physicist and another very odd man born in 1930 who first proposed the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics in 1954. Hugh Everett's many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics arose from what must have uh, been one of the world's most, uh, you know, um, mind-bending drinking sessions. Uh, one evening in 1954, in a student hall at Princeton University, grad student Everett was drinking sherry with his friends when he came up with the idea that quantum effects caused the universe to constantly split. He developed the idea that night for his PhD thesis. According to his work, we are living in a multiverse of countless universes full of copies of each of us. And many mighty minds were completely fucking blown when he put this out there. Max Tegmark, a Swedish-American physicist, cosmologist, and machine learning researcher, professor at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, has said that Everett's work is as important as Einstein's work on relativity. But the leading physicists of the day, you know, in Everett's time, when he came out with this, could not stomach his ideas. They couldn't cope with the idea that every decision we make creates new universes, one for all possible outcomes. They couldn't comprehend that universes are continually being created. Everett was pressured to publish a watered-down version of his idea, and it pissed him off. He was so upset by the nerd backlash to his proposal that he left the world of academic physics. He joined the Pentagon, worked on a team calculating potential deaths in the event of nuclear war, his job was to calculate how to maximize the death toll for the Soviets while minimizing it for Americans by looking at fallout predictions for various bomb drop scenarios. And that is a dark-ass job. Important job. Whew. Man. Uh, Everett died in 1982 at the age of 51. And did he wonder how his nuke work mixed with his belief in parallel worlds? Were his actions, if not leading to nuclear destruction in this world, leading to nuclear destruction in countless parallel worlds? Tegmark says he wrote arguably the first ever serious report on just how devastating a nuclear war would be for the U.S. It helped devise the concept of mutually assured destruction, MAD, a concept appropriately summed up by its acronym, that we'd be insane to start a nuclear war because we'd all die or wish we were all dead. And MAD might actually have prevented the Cold War from overheating to the point of pushing some red launch buttons. Tegmark says MAD 
might have in a major way contributed to the extra caution that might explain why we're still, we're still here. My guess is that Everett's work helped drive home the full horror of war, and this reduced the fraction of the multiverse that saw global nuclear war. Uh, the work Everett did for the Pentagon then arguably had a net positive effect on the multiverse. Everett's life, man, fascinating and tragic. Too much brains, not enough heart. Uh, he wrote to Einstein when he was just 12, and Einstein replied to his letter, Young Hugh was already keen at challenging the very highest figures of physics authority. His letter was an attempt to solve the paradox of what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. He was recommended for Princeton by his old professor of mathematics who wrote, this is a once in a lifetime recommendation for I think it most unlikely that I shall ever again encounter a student I can give such complete and unreserved support for. He was like some of the geniuses we've talked about already, an odd duck. Brilliant with science and math, he was ignorant and cruel when it came to any emotional intelligence. Life was numbers and equations and science-based theories. Emotional connections to those around him uh, meant little to him or they were just uh, impossible to comprehend. Whenever it died of a heart attack, his teenage son, Mark, discovered the body. Mark recalls that trying to revive his dead father was the first time he could remember ever touching his father, ever. He realized he didn't know his dad when his dad passed. He said years later, I didn't really have any relationship with him. He lived with this guy, lived with him, you know, until he died, but didn't have a relationship with him. Not long after that, Mark, uh, his son, you know, moved to Los Angeles, became the lead singer and songwriter for the band Eels. You may uh, 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 know about them if you don't recognize the name. Nova Kane for the Soul. Oh, that's a great song. I didn't think back then about uh, how a lot of their songs express the sadness Mark experienced as a son of a depressed, alcoholic, emotionally detached man when I listened to a lot of their music back in college. Everett's daughter, Elizabeth, killed herself with an overdose of sleeping pills 14 years after her dad's death, and she left a note in her purse saying she was going to go join her father in another universe. And her poor mother, her poor brother, uh, you know, he would, uh, Mark would write another ill song about her death, maybe thinking too much about how many universes uh, may exist in addition to ours. Doesn't help you live a very good life in this universe. Everett was a hardcore atheist as well. This is intense. In his will, he left instructions for his widow, Nancy, to throw his ashes out with the fucking garbage, and she did. <laughs> Jeez. I wonder if he didn't care about his life in this world that much because he uh, figured he'd still be alive in other worlds. I wonder if he was an emotionally available dad in any of those other worlds. Now let's dig further into Everett's multiverse speculation. Part of understanding multiverse theory and its counterarguments comes from our understanding of how the universe began and our attempts to answer the question, what existed before the Big Bang, if the Big Bang, in fact, existed. This is something I've always wondered. Cosmologists have come up with several possible speculations as to what existed before the Big Bang, which is the most, uh, you know, broadly accepted theory of the universe's uh, creation among scientists. You know, if anything existed at all, here are the four more, most cited speculations as to what existed before the Big Bang. Uh, the first is nothingness. It's entirely possible, according to many, that there was no previous era. Assuming that this is true, it means that matter, energy, space, and time began abruptly. Perhaps this abrupt change sprang from a collision with a parallel universe or maybe something else. It's a question science doesn't have a definite answer to, and it's something that makes no sense to me. I'm not as scientifically as intelligent as anyone I'll mention here today, not even close, but I just can't believe that we came from nothing. How could that be possible? To me, coming from nothing is an argument for the existence, uh, if it's true in some sense, of a higher creative power, a God. You know, God flipped on the light switch and put the universe building, you know, into motion. That makes more sense to me personally than 
just something, everything coming from just true nothingness. But again, that's just my scientifically uneducated opinion. I, I admittedly sit at the intellectual kitty table when it comes to stuff like this. Maybe it makes perfect sense to people uh, talking at the grown-ups table. Another theory that attempts to explain what existed before the Big Bang is quantum emergence. According to this view, space and time developed out of a primeval state described by quantum theory of gravity, but no one has a good explanation for quantum gravity just yet. No one has found one gravitational rule book that governs all galaxies, quarks, and everything in between. Uh, then there's these super complicated ideas of string theory. We're going to talk about that quite a bit off and on the rest of this uh, suck. Basically, string theory deals with differences of quantum tunneling and quantum fluctuations between different energy states. You know, easy science concepts and shit like that. You know, that everybody knows about, which I get. I totally got what I just said. You know, my kids call me QF because um, I, I just, I talk about quantum fluctuations all the time. It's just fucking quantum fluctuation this and quantum fluctuation that. They're like, dad, enough, enough already with the quantum fluctuation talk. Uh, but seriously, what the fuck is a quantum fluctuation? It's a temporary change in the amount of energy in a point in space. As explained in Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, this allows the creation of particle-antiparticle pairs of virtual particles. And I'd, ex I'd explain it further, but I haven't dedicated my life to quantum physics. I hope that made sense to you. I, I literally might as well have just uh, said something in another language. I could, I could read that fucking hundred times and I'd be like, okay, sure. Uh, there's also the cyclic universe. In this theory, the Big Bang is just the latest Big Bang in an endless stream of Big Bangs and the continual expansion, collapse, and renewed expansion of space and time. And I get that kind of, yes, cycles I get. Quantum fluctuation. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, what I've learned is that no one can concretely explain how the universe got here scientifically. That's the gist I've gotten from this so far. But a lot of smart people are trying to figure it, figure it all out. I'm sure just like the past breakthroughs we've gone over, more breakthroughs are coming. Who knows, you know, what will be explained in the coming years. Now let's look at a few of the hypotheses that make up multiverse theory. There are, of course, varying ideas of how it could lay out. Cosmologist Max Tegmark, right, that MIT big brain we quoted earlier talking about Hugh Everett, he provided a taxonomy of universes beyond the familiar observable universe. The four levels of Tegmark's classification are arranged such that subsequent levels can be understood to encompass and expand upon previous levels. Put your big brain helmets on. We're going we're gonna to power through some heavy shit, and then we're going to make it to a cosmological timeline where we can go over a variety of important scientific events you don't have to have ever aced AP science classes to understand. I, I don't say that condescendingly. I just personally really struggle with comprehension some of these things. Uh, you know, and I assume that maybe wrongly that many of you also might struggle a bit with comprehension of some of these things, but we, we got it is the internet coming up. We're going to, we're going to get to some lighter stuff too. So let's talk about these first, these four levels. The first of the four levels is an extension of our universe. This level one an extension of our universe, a prediction of cosmic inflation is the existence of an infinite ergodic universe, which being infinite must contain Hubble volumes, realizing all initial conditions and ergodic means relating to or denoting systems or processes with the property that, given sufficient time, they include or impinge on all points in a given space and can be represented statistically by a reasonably large selection of points. And a Hubble volume is a spherical region of the observable universe surrounding an observer beyond which objects recede from the observer at a rate greater than the speed of light due to universe expansion. And an infinite universe will contain an infinite number of Hubble volumes all having the same physical laws and physical constants. So it's like a bunch of little, you know, universes within a bigger universe. 
You know, in regard to configurations such as the distribution of matter, almost all will differ from our Hubble volume. However, because there are infinitely many far beyond the cosmological horizon, there will eventually be Hubble volumes with similar and even identical configurations, right? Parallel universes, if you will. Travel far enough and Tegmark estimates there are Hubble volumes identical to ours. Given infinite space, there would in fact be an infinite number of these Hubble volumes identical to ours in the universe. And I think I get this, right? If there's literally no end to the universe, if it is infinitely big, then you could theoretically travel you know, far enough, say trillions upon trillions upon trillions uh, of light years away and run into another galaxy identical to this one with another Earth. And, you know, uh, eventually, if you travel far enough, not just another Earth, but another Earth with another you, another me. Now into level two. What if there are universes with different physical constants? In the eternal inflation, inflation theory, which is a variant of the cosmic inflation theory, the multiverse or space as a whole is stretching and will continue to stretch forever, but some regions of space stop stretching and form distinct bubbles like gas pockets and a loaf of rising bread. These bubbles are embryonic level one multiverses. Different bubbles may experience different spontaneous symmetry breaking, which results in different properties, such as different physical constants. And I'm sharing this bit of information in the hopes that some of you will understand it more than I do, because the only part I really got out of that was the bread part. I, I get it. Gas bubbles and bread. Yeah, yeah, Mm-hmm. Uh, level, level two also includes John Archibald Wheeler's, uh, <laughs> oscillatory universe theory and Lee Smolin's, uh, fecund universes theory. First, the oscillatory universe theory, a cyclic model or oscillating model is any of several cosmological models in which the universe follows infinite or indefinite self-sustaining cycles. For example, the oscillating universe theory briefly considered by Albert Einstein in 19 theory, 1930, 19 theory. Uh, in 1930, theorized a universe following an eternal series of oscillations, each beginning with the Big Bang and ending with the Big Crunch. In the interim, the universe would expand for a period of time before the gravitational attraction of matter causes it to collapse back and undergo a bounce. Now, the fecund universe's theory. Smolin's hypothesis of cosmological natural selection, also called the fecund universe's theory, suggests that a process uh, <laughs> analogous to biological natural selection applies at the grandest of scales. Smolin published the idea in 1992 and summarized it in a book aimed at a lay audience called The Life of the Cosmos. So that's level two. And, uh, you know, to sum it up, let's, uh, let's move on to level three. Let's, let's keep going forward. Level three is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Now we've arrived back at Hugh Everett's many worlds interpretation. We mentioned it earlier. And it's now just one of several mainstream interpretations of quantum mechanics. One aspect of quantum mechanics is that certain observations cannot be predicted absolutely. Instead, there's a range of possible observations, each within a different probability. According to MWI, each of these possible observations corresponds to a different universe. This is what we talked about earlier, right? Where each decision we make just keeps, the universe just keeps fracturing and just creating more and more universes where, you know, there's two choices we can make and we make one. Well, now there's another universe split off where we made the other choice. Think about a six-sided die thrown and the result of that throw corresponds to a quantum mechanics observable all six possible ways to die can fall correspond to six different universes. Teagmark argues that a level three multiverse did not actually contain more possibilities in the Hubble volume than a level one or level two multiverse. In effect, all these different worlds created by splits in a level three multiverse have the same physical constants found in some Hubble volumes in a level one multiverse. Teagmark writes that the only difference between level one and level three is where your doppelganger resides. 
In level one, they live elsewhere in our good old three-dimensional space, right? Remember that back for you? We have to travel a long way across space to find your doppelganger. In level three, they live on another quantum branch in an infinite dimensional Hilbert space. And I may be wrong here, but this feels again like uh, Stranger Things, the upside down for you uh, Netflix fans, right? In a level three multiverse, what if parallel wor worlds are in a way just right next to us, not across the galaxy? We just, we just don't know how to reach out and access them. Maybe just not yet. All level two bubble universes with different physical constants can in effect be found as worlds created by splits at the moment of spontaneous symmetry breaking in a level three multiverse. According to Berkeley cosmologists and theoretical physicists, uh, Yasunori Nomura and Raphael Bosu at the Berkeley Center for Theoretical Physics and Leonard Susskind at the Stanford Institute for Theoretical Physics, this is because global space-time appearing in the eternally inflating multiverse is a redundant concept. This implies that the multiverses of levels one, two, and three are in fact the same thing. This hypothesis is referred to as multiverse equals quantum many worlds. This is some, this is some super, I love this stuff, man, but man, this is like top shelf nerd shit. This is like, you know, when you're, when you're having debates about multiverse quantum many worlds versus, you know, level three fucking multiverse or level one, you are in the upper echelon. Like if you're having an actual intellectual conversation about that, congratulations, because you're like in the top 1% of the top 1% of all nerds. Um, according to uh, Yasunori Nomura, this quantum multiverse is static and time is a simple illusion. And that hurts my brain to think about. I can't, ah, what? Time is an illusion. My God, when I think about shit like this, it's kind of like trying to think about what happened before the Big Bang or how the Big Bang could actually work, which we'll talk about in a bit, which is, blows my mind. I picture, I picture my brain being a balloon. I had this thought last night when I was putting this together. My brain's a balloon. And I just picked, or like a whoopee cushion is maybe a better, uh, you know, analogy. And I just picture that someone has just sat on it and is just deflating my whoopee cushion brain. <laughs> and then I, and then as I zoom out from the thought of my own whoopee cushion brain, it's not my head that my brain is in. I picture that I'm like Homer Simpson, just slobbering and thinking about donuts, just mmm, donuts. Uh, now to level four, the ultimate ensemble. And we'll move on. The ultimate mathematical universe hypothesis, according to Teigmark, is Teigmark's own hypothesis. <laughs> Makes sense. He likes his own better than the other ideas. Uh, Teigmark says this level considers all universes to be equally real, which can be described by different mathematical structures. He writes, abstract mathematics is so general that any theory of everything, TOE, you know, TOE, which is definable in purely formal terms, independent of vague human, human terminology, is also a mathematical structure. For instance, a toe involving a set of different types of entities denoted by words, say, and relations between them denoted by additional words is nothing but what mathematicians call a set theoretical model, and one can generally find a formal system that it is a model of. He argues that this implies that any conceivable parallel universe theory can be described as level four and subsumes all other ensembles, therefore brings closure to the hierarchy of multiverses, and there cannot be, say, a level five. Take that, level five nerd guys. Oh, you think there's level five multiverse? Shut the fuck up and listen to Teigmark. Why don't you pull your nerd head out of your nerd ass? Wake up and smell the quantum fluctuations. Yeah, let's said that right. Well, somebody, somebody doesn't believe this. You know who? Jürgen Schmidhuber, a noted German computer scientist specializing in artificial intelligence. And Jürgen says that the set of mathematical structures is not even well-defined and, and that it admits only universe representations and... Uh, describable by constructive mathematics, you know, computer programs. And Jürgen explicitly includes universe representations describable by non-halting programs whose output bits converge after finite time 
Though the convergence time itself may not be predictable by a halting program due to the undecidability of the halting problem. And he also explicitly discusses the more restricted ensemble of quickly computable universes. And Jürgen Schmidhuber can fuck off. I've always hated that piece of shit. No, oh, not halting programs. That's, that's so, oh, that's so Jürgen. That's classic Jürgen being Jürgen. What a douche Jürgen. I kid, I don't know the fuck he's talking about. I just shared that information in the hopes that some of you understood it. Uh, I think he's saying that maybe we're not smart enough at the present time to understand what other possibilities might describe multiple universes, but I can't be sure, right? I think he's just saying that, you know, maybe when artificial intelligence creates supercomputers much more powerful than the human mind, they will think of other multiverse possibilities that we aren't able to comprehend right now. It does make some sense to me. And there's other hypotheses about the multiverse idea. Uh, the American the theoretical physicist and string theorist and guy who teaches at Columbia and studied at Harvard and Oxford, and I get it, you're smart, Brian Greene, discussed nine total types of multiverses. These ones are going to be quick. This is a little, little quick little summaries. This will be fast. Uh, number one, the quilted multiverse works only in an infinite universe. With an infinite amount of space, every possible event will occur an infinite number of times. However, the speed of light prevents us from being aware of these other identical areas. Uh, number two, inflationary. The inflationary multiverse is composed of various pockets in which inflation fields collapse and uh, form new universes. Number three, the brain multiverse, B-R-A-N-E, postulates that our entire universe exists on a membrane, a brain, which floats in a higher dimension or bulk. In this bulk, there are other membranes with their own universes. These universes can interact with one another, and when they collide, the violence and energy produced is more than enough to give rise to another Big Bang. The brains float or drift near another in the bulk. I mean, I'm picturing these membranes being part of like some big creature, right? This it's Nimrod. It's Nimrod. We're all inside of Nimrod. Uh, the brains float or drift near each other in the bulk. Every few trillion years, attracted by gravity or some other force we do not understand, collide and bang into another. This repeated contact gives rise to multiple or cyclic Big Bangs. This particular hypothesis falls under string theory. Uh, number four, cyclic, right? That again, the cyclic multiverse has multiple brains that have collided, causing big bangs. The universe is bounced back and passed through time until they are pulled back together and again collide, destroying old content and creating them anew. This is kind of like if you have read uh, Stephen King's Dark Tower series where, you know, uh, the Dark Tower just kicks you back to the beginning. You just, you just keep, it just destroys the universe and restarts it. And you're just running through this cycle where, uh, you know, kind of thinking about this uh, a little deeper. What if, what if this is, the millionth time we've been right here, right? Which is another thing that can make my brain hurt. What if we just have been repeating this particular cycle over and over and over again? Uh, number five, landscape. The landscape multiverse relies on string theories, uh, Kalabaya spaces. Quantum fluctuations drop the shades to a lower energy level, creating a pocket with a set of laws different from that of the surrounding space. There's six, quantum. The quantum multiverse creates a new universe when a dimension, or excuse me, when a diversion in events occurs as in the many worlds interpretation, going back to Hugh Everett. Uh, seven, holographic. The holographic multiverse is derived from the theory that the surface area of space can encode the contents of the volume of the region. Uh, number eight, this one I have heard of before. There's the Yahuwah 13 multiverse, where uh, Father Yod is the center of you know infinite universes, and his music holds the key to understanding anything and everything. Yes! Uh-huh. Welcome to the multiverse, baby. We've made it to the end of the path. The circle is complete and the eye is open. And now you're balling, baby. 
You've taken to the hole and the hole has led you home. I'm the dad you never knew you needed. The one you know you need now. Home is whole. Whole is home. All holes lead to home. Ballin', baby. I can't. There is no Yahuwah 13 multiverse that I know of. But if the multiverse is real, then there are universes where Father Yo did not die hang gliding. Maybe he's still alive somewhere, 97 years old, somehow still balling his ass off, baby. Uh, let's get to the real number eight. The eighth uh, additional possibility, the simulated multiverse exists on complex computer systems that simulate entire universes. Damn it. Right? This is the thought that we're all living in a simulation, right? The matrix. When people talk about, oh, the matrix is broken, right? Elon Musk, many other amazing minds have talked about this. You know, if we are living in a computer simulation, there could, of course, be infinite universes or at least infinitely increasing amounts of universes. This computer would have been built that created all those universes by post-humans, by advanced robots that evolved from artificial intelligence created initially by humans that then outlast humans in some sort of Terminator Skynet situation. And then the AI quickly advances itself over and over and over again, infinitely, essentially, far past the limitations of the human mind, eventually becomes powerful enough to build virtual universes populated by you and me. And my brain balloon or whoopee cushion just deflated again. Mmm, donuts. Uh, finally, there is the uh, ultimate multiverse theory, which contains every mathematically possible universe under different laws of physics. There are even more ideas to grapple with multiverses, including black hole cosmology, the anthropic principle, but I think we've laid out enough possibilities of how there could be worlds out there in addition uh, or next to ours for, for right now. There's also a number of scientists who consider uh, multiverse theory to be bad science. And we'll look into those who don't believe that other universes exist that it's even possible for other universes to exist later after the timeline. Uh, right now, let's 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 use our time sub timeline to investigate just how we got to our current understanding of the universe. Right after a quick word from our sponsors, and thank you again for supporting our sponsors. Uh, I need a sponsor break. Yeah, please use those URLs. Uh, my tired brain needs to take a little uh, science vacation for just a second. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, 
you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay. Uh, before we go into the timeline, I just want to say, don't worry if you're not comprehending all the details of the multiverse theory or universe creation theories. If you truly understood all of this stuff inside and out, well, you'd be the first human being to ever do so. The world's brightest minds haven't, uh, you know, definitively answered these questions. They're trying to. Maybe someday they will, and maybe they won't. Maybe some knowledge will forever lie beyond our grasp. I think the important thing to understand so far is that because of the hard work of centuries of scientific thinking and millennia of cosmological speculation, we know a lot more about our universe than we used to. We know that the world is round. Other planets are round. We know the planets in our solar system revolve around the sun. We know there are for sure so many worlds out there in the galaxy that we know so very little about. Some our telescopes can now see and some, you know, that they can't. 
And we know that a lot of really smart people who devote their entire lives to the mysteries of the universe, we know that many of them think a multiverse could be real. And not only can our universe have an infinite number of planets, but there could also be an infinite number of universes containing infinite variations of these planets. How crazy is that to think that reality could be limitless, beyond big, infinite in a number of ways? What if someday we could figure out how to not only time travel, which I know I said in the time travel suck, it doesn't look currently possible, and I was a little grouchy, but I feel more open to it now. What if we could also travel into dimensions of space and time outside of this one? And I was like, again, going, I, my mind, probably just because I just watched it again for the second time, Stranger Things. Just what if there is some type of upside down or many upside downs that we could bounce in and out of someday? Just fascinating. So let's move into a brief overview of the many minds throughout history who have led uh, us to a more, or to be able to more realistically entertain all these possibilities. Uh, cosmological time suck timeline, engage. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Let's start in the 16th century BCE, when early meat sacks were wondering what our place in the cosmos was. Mesopotamian cosmology had a flat circular earth enclosed in a cosmic ocean, which is a pretty cool thought. There's a big island in a vast, endless sea. Uh, terrifying to think about how big that ocean would be, right? So many sharks, so many sharks. Uh, in the 12th century BCE, the Rig Veda, the ancient Hindi Veda, has some cosmological hymns which describe the origin of the universe originating from the uh, monastic golden egg. What if that one's true? What if after doing centuries of more number crunching, theoretical physicists and cosmologists arrive at the answer to how the universe got here? And that answer is that uh, we all hatched out of a golden egg. Can you imagine? Next question. It's golden egg. Uh, golden egg is the answer. Uh, you can put your calculators away. You can uh, you can wipe off all your, your whiteboards and your, uh, chalkboards. We're good. We've done it. On the 6th century BC, the Babylonian world map shows the Earth surrounded by a cosmic ocean again, so many sharks, with seven islands arranged around it uh, to form a seven-pointed star. Contemporary biblical cosmology reflects the same view of a flat, circular Earth swimming on water, overarched by the solid vault of the firmament to which are fastened the stars. You know, and, and some people still believe this kind of stuff, you know. Damn you, NASA, and your Photoshop wizardry trying to make, it, make us believe something different. Uh, between the 6th and 4th centuries BCE, Greek philosophers, as early as Anaximander, uh, introduced the idea of multiple or even infinite universes. Democritus further details that these worlds vary in distance and size, the presence, number, and size of their suns and moons, and that they are subject to destructive collisions. Also during this time period, the Greeks established that the Earth is spherical rather than flat. And then later the Catholic Church will say, nope, uh-uh, it's flat again, motherfuckers. Anyone who thinks different gets burned. And people were like, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right, what do I care? All right, it's flat, fine. I'm just a peasant hoping to eat enough stale bread to stay alive and avoid the plague anyway. Also in the 6th century, the Greek math cult leader we talked about earlier, Pythagoras, uh, believed the earth was in motion, had the knowledge of the periodic numeral relations, numerical relations of the planets, moon, and sun. The celestial spheres of the planets were thought to produce a harmony called the music of the spheres. Another Greek, Aristotle, taught in the 4th century BCE that rotating spheres carried the moon, sun, planets, and stars around a stationary earth. The earth was unique because of its central position, its material composition. In the 3rd century BCE, Archistarchus, uh, <laughs> that's kind of a weird name, a Greek astronomer and mathematician proposes a scientific heliocentric model of our solar system placing the sun, not the earth, as the center of the known universe. Many centuries before Copernicus, he correctly deduces that other planets in correct order from the sun. And again, 
centuries later, when the Roman church takes over Europe, they'll be like, nope, uh-uh, flat, earth is center. Anyone who disagrees can suck my Pope dick. I'm paraphrasing, but that would be the general message. Uh, also in the third century BC, the Greek mathematician Archimedes, in his essay, The Sand Reckoner, estimates that the diameter of the cosmos is the equivalent of what we call two light years. He wasn't right, but he pushed things forward. He tried. I keep thinking about that concept in this episode today. You don't have to get things you know exactly right. Sometimes, even if you're wrong, you push things forward enough for the next person to get things right. Or more right so that the person after them can get it right. You know, so on. So much value in just pushing things forward, however you can. In the second century CE, the Ptolemaic system emerges. Ptolemy, we talked about him, uh, proposes an earth-centered universe. And the sun and planets revolve around the earth. In the fifth century, ancient Buddhist texts speak of hundreds of thousands of billions, countlessly, innumerably, boundlessly, incomparably, incalculably, unspeakably, inconceivably, this is a quote, immeasurably, inexplicably, many worlds to the east, and infinite worlds in the ten directions. Mm-hmm. A lot of adjectives there. Uh, from the 5th through the 11th century CE, several astronomers proposed a sun-centered universe, including uh, Aryabhata, major 5th fifth, major fifth century Indian astrologer, uh, Albamasar, 9th century Persian astrologer, and the 10th and early 11th century Iranian astrologer, Al-Zijzi. Uh, in the 8th century, to jump back for a second, Indian Puranic Hindu cosmology states that in which the universe goes through repeated cycles of creation, destruction, and rebirth, each cycle lasts 4.32 billion years, and each cycle the universe expands from a single point or speck of dust until it collapses. So kind of Big Bang-esque there. Uh, the texts also speak of innumerable worlds or universes, a multiverse. In 964, you know, 964 CE, uh, Abid al-Raham al-Sufi, a Persian astronomer, makes the first recorded observations of the Andromeda Galaxy and the large Magellanic Cloud, the first galaxies other than the Milky Way to be observed from Earth in his book, Book of Fixed Stars. Uh, in the 12th century, Sunni Muslim and Middle Eastern philosopher Fakir al-Din al-Razi discusses Islamic cosmology, rejecting Aristotle's idea of an Earth-centered universe. And in the context of his commentary on the Quranic verse, all praise belongs to God, Lord of the worlds, proposes that the universe has more than a thousand thousand worlds beyond this world such that each one of these worlds is bigger and more massive than this world, as well as having the like of what this world has. He argued that there exists an infinite outer space beyond the known world and that there could be an infinite number of universes. So, you know, thinking about the multiverse back in 12th century. 13th century CE, uh, Nasir al-Din al-Tusi, who is a Persian polymath, architect, philosopher, physician, scientist, and theologian, provides the first empirical evidence for the Earth's rotation on its axis. In the 15th century, al-Kushi, who is an Ottoman astronomer, mathematician, and physicist, provides empirical evidence for the Earth's rotation on its axis and rejects the stationary Earth theories of Aristotle and Ptolemy. Also in the 15th century, German astronomer and philosopher Nicholas de Cusa uh, suggests that the Earth is a nearly spherical shape that revolves around the sun and that each star is itself a distant sun. Two for two, he nailed it. I know enough to know that. <laughs> Yay! Ah, feeling, feeling good on some of these. feel like I know, you know, some of the things that a 15th century dude knew. So that's, that's not bad. In 1543, his, uh, in his revolutionary work on the solar system, on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, Polish astronomer Copernicus again postulates the sun as the center of the universe. An idea we now know had been brought up centuries earlier, but had been forgotten, or probably more accurately, an idea that had been forbidden because it didn't line up with the biblical interpretation of the universe accepted at that time. In 1576, 
Thomas Diggs, an English mathematician and astronomer, modifies the Copernican system, proposing a multitude of stars extending to infinity. Uh, in 1584, G Giordano Bruno, an Italian Dominican friar, philosopher, mathematician, poet, uh, cosmo uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, poet, cosmological theorist, and hermetic occultist, fucking titles on these sons of bitches, uh, proposes a non-hierarchical cosmology wherein the Copernican solar system is not the centrics of the universe, but rather a relatively insignificant star system amongst an infinite multitude of others. And he would be in prison for seven years and then executed for holding opinions contrary to the Catholic faith. Uh-huh. Uh, he forgot that when the Pope tells you to suck his dick, unless you want to lose your life in some very painful way, you suck it. And he did lose his life in a very painful way. This poor bastard was hung naked or hanged uh, naked uh, upside down in public and then burned alive. As was God's wish. Amen. So weird that he was hanged upside down. Is it, is it called hanged or hung when you're upside down? I know that when you're like hanged, like killed, it's, it's hanged. When you put something on a wall, it's hung. But this is gray area. What if you're upside down? Then is it hanged? Let's get the uh, etymologist on this one. Um, but how do they justify hanging him upside down? That's just so weird. Hang the heretic. Yes. He will hang for having opinions other than ours for some time before he is burned alive. Hey, no, what are you doing? No, don't hang him like that. Not by his arms, you fool. It's supposed to be punishments, not some sort of vacation. Are you going to give him food and drink as well? Why not just untie him and send him off to an island of beautiful, horny women? Upside down. I want the blood to rush to his, his foolish head. And then we'll burn him. Yes, that is what, yes, that is what God obviously would want. Uh, man, the medieval Catholic church was full of some rough motherfuckers. Uh, Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler, Galileo, they pushed things further, as we talked about you know, earlier in the 16th century. Uh, 1676, Danish astron astronomer, uh, <laughs> Ole Christensen Romer, became the first person to measure the speed of light. This accomplishment was an essential step in developing an understanding of the universe. Essentially, it would figure in the development of Einstein's theory of relativity, and the speed of light also defines the light year, which is the yardstick that astronomers use to measure the vast distances between stars and galaxies. 1687, Sir Isaac Newton, father of science and English mathematician, physicist, astronomer, theologian, author, uh, illustrates the laws of motion and the law of universal gravitation, which becomes the basis for classical physics. In 1791, uh, Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles Darwin, natural philosopher, inventor, and physiologist, pens the first description of a cyclical expanding and contracting universe. 1838, the idea that the earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around is confirmed by solid evidence. 1905, Albert Einstein publishes his special theory of relativity, generalizing Galileo's principle of relativity to apply not only to terrestrial mechanics, but to all laws of physics. He posits that space and time are not separate continua and that the speed of light is the same for all frames of reference. In 1912, American astronomer Vestal Melvin Slipher measures the Doppler shift of receding galaxies. These measurements later used by Edwin Hubble to demonstrate empirically that the universe is expanding. In 1917, Wilhelm de Sitter, a Dutch mathematician, physicist, and astronomer, in his paper on Einstein's theory of gravitation and its astronomical consequences, third paper, provided the first model of an exponentially expanding universe dominated by a cosmological constant. During an expedition to view a solar eclipse, 
Arthur Eddington, an English astronomer, physicist, mathematician, and philosopher of science, records the deflection of starlight by the sun's gravity confirming Einstein's general theory of relativity in 1919. When Harlow Shapley, an American scientist, began to study large groups of stars called globular clusters in 1914, very little was known about the overall shape of our galaxy or our place in it. By the time he finished his research in 1919, after publishing more than 40 research papers, the overall shape of our galaxy was coming into focus, including the position of our solar system. Shapley's discovery of our place in the galaxy was a remarkable achievement comparable to discovering the Earth orbits the sun to many physicists. In 1923, Edwin Hubble crunches some numbers, proves that the universe is composed of many thousands of such galaxies. 1929, Hubble convinces Einstein that he had been wrong when he'd made an assumption earlier that the universe was finite. Einstein now believes it is infinite. Einstein famously refers to his earlier error as my biggest blunder, is his quote. And then he goes home and he has sex with his wife and first cousin. His wife and maternal first cousin, who was also his paternal second cousin. Remember that from the Einstein suck? His mother-in-law was also his aunt. <laughs> and his father-in-law was his first cousin once removed. I would think marrying and fucking his double cousin wife would be his biggest blunder. But, you know, agree to disagree, I guess. Uh, 1949. Uh, English astronomer Fred Hoyle both coins the phrase Big Bang and dismisses the notion that the universe has been born at one moment about 10,000 million years ago in the past and that galaxies are still traveling away from us after that initial burst. On February 12th, 1952, Michael motherfucking McDonald is born. Shine sweet freedom, shine your light on me. You are the magic, the right where I want to be. Oh, sweet freedom, carry me along. Oh, keep the spirit alive, hold it on. Yeah, been, been too long since anyone was McDonald. Tri- Triple M, man, Triple M uh, didn't contribute anything. Tri- Triple M contributed happiness to me in this episode. Also, I was going too high. Always going too high on Triple M. I forget about his range. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the year before, we're going to back up. We're going to back up now from 1940. Wait, 1952 was Michael McDonald. 1949 was Fred Hoyle coining the term Big Bang. We'll go back to 1948. American cosmologist Ralph Alfner, uh, Robert Herman published a prediction that if indeed the universe were created in a Big Bang, today we would see the glow of light that was released when atoms first formed, when the universe was about 300,000 years old. Since the universe has been expanding for billions of years, the light would have been stretched uh, a thousand times so that it could be only detected today as microwaves. And then in 1964, American physicists Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson of Bell Labs announced they had identified this light, providing the strongest evidence to date in support of the Big Bang Theory. Virtually all cosmologists and theoretical physicists uh, do endorse this theory today. Uh, most believe that our universe was born about 13.7 billion years ago in a massive expansion that blew up, uh, you know, space like a like a gigantic balloon. 1966, James Peebles, a Canadian-American astrophysicist, in his primordial helium abundance in the primordial fireball two paper, uh, shows how the Big Bang model predicts the correct abundance of helium in the current universe. Uh, perfect. People can make their voices higher by sucking helium out of balloons anywhere in the universe. Good, good to know. 1967, American and British physicists Robert Wagner, William Fowler, and Fred Hoyle on their On the Synthesis of Elements at Very High Temperatures show how the Big Bang model also predicts the correct abundance of deuterium and lithium in the current universe. So that's good. 
People can treat being uh, bipolar anywhere in the universe, and they can fuel experimental fusion reactors and do whatever else fucking deuterium lets you do. 1982, two Canadian scientists, James Peebles, J. Richard Bond, along with American astrophysicist George Blumenthal, and others proposed that cold, dark matter makes up about 80% of the matter in the universe. And what's dark matter? It's material that scientists cannot directly observe, material that does not emit light or energy. So basically, we don't know. No one knows what the hell it really is. There's a lot of intelligent guesses, but at the end of the day, no one totally knows. And I love that. I love how there's still a lot of mystery in the cosmos. Uh, 1988, the C... CFA2 Great Wall, a.k.a. the Coma Wall, is discovered. And what is the Coma Wall? This is fucking crazy. It's a huge wall way out in space made up of people in comas of their spirits that have floated out there. Like when you go into a coma, your soul can astral project around space. And sometimes it can get stuck on these walls and it, and it makes it hard to come out of comas. That's why a lot of people think it's hard to get out of comas because people are stuck on these space walls. Uh, no, it doesn't mean that. I wish, I wish you did. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine if something like that was true? I would love it so much if some, just anything that absurd was ever true. I would, it would be like one of the greatest moments of my life if there was like a news story about scientists getting some new images back from the Hubble Space Telescope. And they're just like, oh, we don't, we don't fucking understand it. Uh, we're, you know, we're really struggling to kind of comprehend how this is possible, but the pictures are what the pictures are. And we found, uh, you know, about 40, you know, trillion Google Plexes uh, away out in space. We, there's a wall and there's a lot of people uh, asleep out there. They're spirits. And, uh, you know, you can see, look, there's a redhead lady there. And uh, there's an Asian guy right there. And they're fucking stuck. And uh, this is uh, Jack, our, one of our fellow physicists. This is his cousin. This is cousin Jim is stuck out on this fucking goddamn space wall. <laughs> Why can't someone like hack the Hubble Space Telescope and just give them weird ass images? Oh, how funny would that be? Just for that kind of practical joke. If some juvenile hacker could hack into the Hubble Space Telescope and mess with the images, how pissed would scientists be, these cosmologists, if they just kept getting back like new, you know, different you know, pictures of constellations and the constellations just kept showing up in the distinct shape of dicks? So someone <laughs> just kept drawing constellations of dicks. And Hubble, anyway, uh, what's the common wall? I'm getting distracted. It's one of the largest known superstructures in the observable universe. It's, it's an immense galaxy filament, a massive thread-like formation that forms a boundary between large voids in the universe. And it's, I don't know, might be full of space monsters or something. We don't, we don't know. I'm guessing. I don't have any numbers to back that up. I think it might be where Nimrod lives. Our giant space Sasquatch god with a chupacabra head and flaming suns for eyes. I, I think. No one, no one can prove me wrong. In uh, 1989, astronomers began to take finer and finer images of distant galaxies, and it soon became evident that galaxies came in clusters. Our own cluster, called the local group, has about 20 galaxies in it. Some clusters have more than 1,000 galaxies, but are there clusters of clusters of galaxies? I keep wanting to say inquiring minds want to know. Uh, uncovering the large-scale structure of galaxies in the universe required not only looking at images, but finding the distance to each galaxy in order to create a three-dimensional map showing how galaxies are distributed in the universe. John Hutra and Margaret Geller of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics became the leaders in the effort to create this immense map, a map that's still being worked on. The project in, in charge of it is now called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. So far, over 930,000 galaxies reaching out about 2 billion light years have been mapped. It's quite a map. 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope launched in a low Earth orbit. It's been designed and worked on, or it had been designed and worked on for decades prior. Cost over $10 billion to create and maintain. 
Hubble's telescope is powerful enough to spot the light of a firefly at a distance of 7,000 miles. 1995, Robert Williams, director of the Hubble Space Telescope Science Institute, chose a surprising target to point the Hubble t- uh, Space Telescope at. He chose to point it at nothing at all. He pointed it at a place in space that had no planets or stars or visible galaxies, the quietest, darkest place he could find. And he focused the power of this telescope for 11 uh, and a third days of valuable observing time. And he was rewarded with an image of thousands of galaxies. The Hubble Deep Field image has become one of the most remarkable findings of the space age and has again vastly expanded our vision of the cosmos. 1998, two teams of scientists working independently realized that the universe was not just expanding, it was accelerating. In 2010, Wendy Friedman is named director of the observatories of the Carnegie Institution of Washington. Following in the footsteps of the observatory's founding director, George Ellery Hale, who led the effort to build some of the world's largest telescopes of the 20th century, Wendy Friedman is spearheading the effort to construct the giant Magellan Telescope with a primary mirror nearly 80 feet in diameter that, when completed, will produce images 10 times sharper than the Hubble Space Telescope and view objects 100 times fainter. For comparison, Hubble's primary mirror is 7 feet, 10 and a half inches in diameter. This thing's going to be 80 feet. This telescope will be Earth-based and construction planned to take place in Chile with an estimated commission date of 2029. On April 10th, 2019, the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration announced the image of the shadow of the black hole at the center of the M87 galaxy. This is the first time astronomers have ever captured an image of the shadow of a black hole, further proving the existence of black holes, helping to verify Einstein's general theory of relativity. And more discoveries are uh, you know, occurring all the time. Who knows which ones will take place tomorrow or next week or next month. Maybe one of you meet Zach's listening will take humanity's understanding of the cosmos, another quantum leap forward. And now let's pop out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, now let's get back to the multiverse. We're going to do another little summation of multiverse theory collected by fantastic science writer and Stanford University profiler, Kurthon. There are five parts to explain it all. First, we're going to return to the super easy to understand string theory landscape. You know, you get it. It's fucking string theory. Yeah, <laughs> there's strings and stuff in space. Uh, then we're going to look at a little cosmic symphony of vibrating things known as the unifying theory. The third part is the fractal universe. Then we're going to look at uh, lambda and dark energy. Finally, we'll explore the landscape, which is a cool way of saying more complicated sciencey shit. Um, and then we're going to get some idiots of the internet, lighten things up. Let's start with string theory landscape. The string theory landscape combines elements of string theory and cosmic inflation to greatly expand the scope of the Big Bang Theory to incorporate the idea of infinite universes in a vast multiverse. And uh, yeah, that, that. You know, you guys get it. Uh, The theory's advocates say it's the only way to explain why certain features of the universe are suspiciously fine-tuned for life. While critics say it's not scientific because it can't be experimentally verified. The Big Bang Theory describes the abrupt origins of space and time from a swiftly unfurling singularity, a hot, dense point of pure potential, packed impossibly full with eternity, and the rudiments of creation. And with the universe it seeks to explain, this theory is endlessly evolving ever since its proposal nearly a century ago, Physicists have revised and remade it to reflect new scientific concepts and discoveries. And the more I talk about this, I got to say, it seems like this points again to some type of God force, right? It's either a cosmic entity, possibly outside our ability to comprehend, setting everything in motion, or everything in the infinite universe started off as some tiny bit of nothingness and exploded and expanded into everything so quickly. We'll talk about how quick here in a bit. 
Uh, the latest draft of the scientific story of Genesis called the string theory landscape. Entwined at its heart are two of the strangest and most enduring ideas in modern physics, string theory and cosmic inflation, which Stanford physicists helped bring together nearly two decades ago. String theory asserts that the basic building blocks of reality are vibrating, one-dimensional loops of energy that quiver in 10 or more dimensions to strum out the elementary particles and fundamental forces of nature. Cosmic inflation holds that the Big Bang began with a period of exponential expansion that swelled our universe from a fragile quantum speck to a vast manner of emptiness, a quarter billion light years wide in a flicker of a flicker of time. One moment, nothing but a fragile quantum speck and an impossibly blank void. Next moment, universe. Possibly a young multiverse, impossibly big, right? either infinite or quickly growing into something infinite. I get why Hugh Everett never touched his kids, right? Why he drank a lot. He was constantly frustrated and half crazed trying to solve a seemingly unsolvable equation. Just, you know, just wandering around, probably pacing around in his fucking den. How can there be nothing? And then everything. And then infinite varieties of everything. Oh, I need to stare at a chalkboard and then have a drink. And I, I, fuck, I need a fucking bottle. I need a bottle and I need my kids to shut the fuck up so I can solve this equation. And he's probably just drove him mad. Uh, according to this theory, the heavenly sprawl still occurs in distant corners of the cosmos, spinning out a web related, you know, uh, of related daughter universes that connect to form a much larger multiverse. And then there's a cosmic symphony of vibrating things. 1969, Leonard Susskind, the professor of theoretical physics at Stanford University we mentioned earlier, imagined the basic building blocks of the universe as invisible, vibrating loops of energy. And he wasn't super high when he did that. He was sober, you know, at some point in his life when he was like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. vibrating energy loops. <laughs> I, I get it now. Everything is built on vibrating energy loops. Uh, this insight would form the basis of string theory and help lead to a radical re-envisioning of how the universe began. When Susskind came up with the idea for string theory in 1969, he wasn't searching for a theory of everything or trying to provoke a fundamental crisis in physics. His ambition was much more modest. Uh, he was trying to explain the strong force binding protons and neutrons inside of atoms. You know, fucking like grade school shit. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Then a young particle physicist at New York's Yeshiva University, he realized that the mathematical formula that explains what happens when particle pairs collide made more sense if one imagined the particles as individual loops of string that combine and oscillate together for a little while before parting ways. That's kind of what I was thinking uh, before I read this. I was like, man, it just feels like it's string, you know? I want to I want to join into scientific conversations like that when guys are talking about like the nature of atoms and, uh, you know, the ex expansion of the universe. I'm like, yeah, right? It's like string, you know? You ever look at string and you're like, that's it. That's the thing I need right there to make it work. You know, you just kind of, if you string stuff together and you, and you vibrate it, then, you know, it sticks together. Hey, can I get you guys uh, some snacks or I'm going to go grab a, I'm gonna grab some cheese and crackers. You guys, you guys need anything? Um, Suskin describes his joy in, the, in this moment of, of figuring out, you know, he realizes he has this moment when he realizes that the mathematical formula that explains what happens when particle pairs collide makes more sense, you know? If, if, you, if you think about them, the individual loops of string, they combine and oscillate together for a little while before parting ways. And he says, uh, he had this moment where he says, you say to yourself, here I am, the only one on the planet who knows this thing. Soon the rest of the world will know, but right now I'm the only one. And then his elation lasts for just two days. Then he learns that two other physicists, Yuchiri Nambu at the University of Chicago and Holger Nielsen at the University of Copenhagen. They have the, the, the same idea at the same time two days later. Susskind's excitement began spreading to the rest of the physics community in 1984 when physicist John Schwartz Michael Green, now at Caltech and the University of Cambridge, 
respectively published a paper suggesting that uh, string theory could describe not only the strong force, the one Susskind sought to explain, or Suskind sought to explain, but the weakened electromagnetic forces as well. Most intriguing, and also predicted the existence of a massless particle called a graviton. Gravitons are the presumed quantum messengers of gravity, the slippery fourth force that refuses to be corralled into the standard model, the theoretical framework devised by physicists to explain how the basic building blocks of matter interact. Exuberant theorists everywhere soon felt that they were on the verge of reconciling the mathematical discord between general relativity, which explains gravity, and quantum mechanics, which describes the interactions of other fundamental forces. They had a lot of nerds were very excited, a lot of nerd boners, a lot of, a lot of I don't know, wet nerd vaginas. You know, you get it. Uh, there appear to be in, inseparable obstacles to deriving of all of known physics, declared one group of supremely confident string theorists. Wasn't just string theory's explanatory power that physicists found bewitching. They were also wooed by its mathematical beauty. Those who plumbed the depths of its rigorous equations compared the quest to spiritual enlightenment. Man, these guys, these guys are going deep on this. But the theory demanded a lot from its believers, such as the blind acceptance of at least 10 dimensions. The four that we are familiar with, up, down, left, right, front, back, and time, plus another six or more that are invisible because they're curled up or compactified like origami folded from the fabric of reality. And what the fuck is hanging out in those dimensions? Lizard people? Roanoke recluse spiders? Maybe some extra songs that Kenny Rogers didn't have time to record, you know, before he folded them earlier this year? Uh, no one knows. The extra dimensions could have different shapes and sizes, be shuffled in a myriad of ways, since the geometry of the dimensions determine how the strings vibrate and thus the particles and forces that they can manifest as the theory allowed for many combinations of physical laws and constants. The situation grew even more complex, awesome, in the 1990s, when theorists realized that in addition to one-dimensional strings, the theory must also include higher-dimensional membranes or brains and other ingredients such as fluxes. Physicists had clung to a thread of hope that string theory would reduce down to one inevitable universe whose physics resembled our own. Instead, it seemed to describe an astronomical number of possible universes, a value that was, as Susskind put it, measured not in the billions or billions. Wait, measured not in the millions or billions, but in Googles or Googleplexes. A Google is a one followed by a hundred zeros. For reference, a trillion has 12 zeros. And a Googleplex is a one followed by a Google of zeros. So in layman's terms, it's a lot. Big, you know, real big. Uh, string theory has re had reached an impasse. Many physicists were disillusioned. Their best bet for the theory of everything contained so many solutions that it might as well be a theory of nothing. Soon, however, a simple but radical proposition emerged. If the theory's equations did not point to any particular geometry for the extra dimensions, maybe there was no right geometry. Okay. Perhaps each math mathematical possibility in string theory is realized in nature as a physical reality, and our universe is merely one of a boundless variety in the multiverse. But even though string theory allowed for an incredible diversity of worlds, it provided no mechanism for creating them. As Susskind put it, mathematical existence is not the same as physical existence. Discovering that string theory has 100 or 10,500 solutions explains nothing about our world, unless we can also understand how the corresponding environments came into being. And for that, physicists would need to go back to the very first moments of the universe to the beginning of time itself. And that leads us to the third part, fractal universe. I wish, I wish I was just having this fantasy as I'm just talking about this stuff of uh, like, what, what if you had, if you had like, if I had like a really rich dad and, you know, he's really interested in the nature of the universe and he, you know, gives these scientists like the best minds in the world, all this money to work on figuring this shit out with one condition, 
that I have to be included in in all the conversations. I don't know why my mind went there. And it's just me and these scientists in a room and they, and they can't fire me. They can't throw me out and they can't be dicks because I'll tell my dad and their, their funding will be taken away. So they have to humor me, right? And it's like all these guys really like fucking just crunching so many numbers trying to figure it out. I'm like, hey, guys, guys, what about gremlins? Think about that, you know? Okay, hear me out. And in fourth dimension is gremlins. And the gremlins, think about that movie with John Lithgow and it's out on the plane and it's stormy and, they're, and it's trying to fuck up the wing and everybody's scared. And that's how, what's happening in our universe is there's like these gremlin dimension guys. It's like the monsters you can see in movies sometimes. And it's like, we, we're trying to do our thing, you know? And then the gremlins, they're like, they're ruining shit. And that's how accidents happen. You know, it's because it's like, maybe when you fall down and you, you hurt yourself, maybe you didn't really fall down. Maybe gremlin tripped you. And that's a fourth dimension. But in the fifth dimension, it's fucking pigeons with cowboy hats. And they're singing songs, Right. You ever think about that? You know, look at, carry the one. Hey guys, look, look at my numbers. And then for my numbers, it's just like, I just draw pictures of, <laughs> of creatures. I just draw a picture of like a pigeon with a cowboy hat and then just add some numbers to it and then have like a gremlin in the corner and then you just draw a dick or something here and there, but like, but just try and take it seriously. And then what about that? You know, then whenever they go on their break, they're just like fucking comments. We're never going to get there. We're never going to get there if he just keeps talking with his goddamn gibberish. And I'm back. Okay, sorry. I don't know why my brain does stuff like that. Fractal Universe. Late one summer night, nearly 40 years ago, Russian-American theoretical physicist, Andre Linde. Oh, it's kind of a weird, rhymy name. Andre Linde. I think, he, I think he got teased. He was seized by a sudden conviction that he knew how the universe was born. His nocturnal eureka moment would lead to another imagining of, of a multiverse. Late one summer night, 1981. While uh, still a junior research fellow at Lebedev Physical Institute in Moscow, Andrei Linde was struck by revelation. Unable to contain his excitement, he shook awake his wife, Renata Kalush, whispered to her in their native Russian, I think I know how the universe was born. And if I said that to my wife, I am 90% sure she would be so mad and she would say something along the lines of, shut the fuck up and go back to sleep. And then she would, because she would know that I was talking nonsense. She, would, she, wasn't, she wouldn't want to hear my talk of gremlins and pigeons with cowboy hats. Uh, but Andre's wife listened because they had a different relationship. Kalush, a theoretical physicist herself, muttered some encouraging words before falling back asleep. She didn't think he was crazy. It wasn't until the next morning that I realized the full impact of what Andre had told me she recalled later. She's now a professor of physics at Stanford, the Institute for Theoretical Physics. Uh, Linde's nocturnal eureka moment had to do with the problem in cosmology that he and other theorists, including Stephen Hawking, had struggled with for many months. A year earlier, a 32-year-old postdoc at the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory named Alan Guth shocked the physics community by posing a bold modification to the Big Bang Theory. According to Guth's idea, which he called inflation, our universe erupted from a vacuum-like state and underwent a brief period of faster-than-light, way faster-than-light expansion, and less than a billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second. Space-time doubled more than 60 times from a subatomic speck to a volume many times larger than the observable universe. And I know I have already addressed how incredibly hard that is to fathom, but I can't help but think about it again. That a subatomic speck could A, contain a universe or infinite universes, and that B, the transformation from speck to so much more than you can see when you look up at the stars above at night could take place essentially instantaneously. I hope that is what happened because that does feel spiritual to me, 
right? That's a God force just snapping its cosmic fingers and turning nothing into everything. I don't know how you used to explain it. Uh, Guth envisioned the powerful repulsive force fueling the universe's exponential growth as a field of energy flooding space. Uh, as the universe unfurled, this inflation field uh, decayed and its shed energy was transfigured into a fiery bloom of matter and radiation. This pivot from nothing to something and timelessness to time marked the beginning of the Big Bang. The Alpha. It also prompted Guth to famously quip that the inflationary universe was the ultimate free lunch. As theories go, inflation was a beauty. It explained in one fell swoop why the universe is so large, why it was born hot, why its structure appears to be so flat and uniform over vast distances. There was just one tiny problem with this theory. At the end of the day, it didn't really work. To conclude the unpacking of space-time, Guth borrowed a trick from quantum mechanics called tunneling to allow his inflation field to randomly and instantly skip from a higher, less stable energy state to a lower one, thus bypassing a barrier that could not be scaled by classical physics. But... Closer inspection revealed that quantum tunneling caused the inflation field to decay quickly and unevenly, resulting in a universe that was not flat and not uniform. Another fatal flaw of this theory, Guth wrote at the end of his paper on inflation, I am publishing this paper in the hope that it will encourage others to find some way to avoid the undesirable features of the inflationary scenario. Uh, Guth's plea was answered by Linde, Andre who on that fateful summer night realized that inflation didn't require quantum tunneling to work. Instead, the inflation field could be modeled as a ball rolling down a hill of potential energy that had a very shallow, nearly flat slope. While the ball rolls lazily downhill, the universe is inflating, and as it nears the bottom, inflation uh, slows further and eventually ends. This provided a graceful exit to the inflationary state that was lacking in Goose's model and produced a cosmos like the one we observe. Uh, to distinguish it from Guth's original model while still paying homage to it, Linde dubbed his new model, New Inflation. By the time Linde and Kalush moved to Stanford in 1990, field experiments had begun to catch up with this theory. Space missions, uh, space missions were finding temperature variations in the energetic afterglow of the Big Bang, called the cosmic microwave background radiation, that confirmed startling predictions uh, made by the latest inflationary models. These updated models went by various names like chaotic inflation, eternal inflation, internal chaotic inflation. Uh, they all shared in common uh, the graceful exit that Linde pioneered. According to these models, galaxies like the Milky Way grew from faint wrinkles in the fabric of space-time. The density of matter in these wrinkles was slightly greater compared to surrounding areas. This difference was magnified during inflation, allowing them to attract even more matter. From these dense primordial seeds grew the cosmic structures we see today. Linde said galaxies are children of random quantum fluctuations produced during the first 10 to 35 seconds after the birth of the universe. That's fucking crazy to think about. Right? In 35 seconds, tops, that all of these galaxies were made. Inflation predicted that the quantum fluctuations would leave imprints on the universe's background radiation in the form of hotter and colder regions. Uh, and that is precisely what two experiments dubbed Kobe and WMAP found. Linde and others later realized the same quantum fluctuations that produce galaxies can give rise to new inflating regions in the universe. Even though inflation ended in our local cosmic neighborhood 14 billion years ago, it can still continue at the outermost fringes of the universe. The consequence uh, is an ever-expanding sea of inflating space-time dotted with island universes or pocket universes like our own where inflation has ceased. As a result, the universe becomes a multiverse, an eternally growing fractal consisting of ex exponentially many exponentially large parts, wrote Lindy. And they took the multiverse idea further by proposing that each pocket universe um, you know, could have differing properties, a conclusion that some string theorists were ultra reaching independently. It is not the laws of physics uh, that are different in the universes, in each universe, but their realizations. He said an analogy is the relationship between liquid water and ice. 
They're both H- H2O, but realized differently. And Linde's multiverse is it's like a cosmic funhouse with, uh, you know, reality distorted mirrors. Some pocket universes are resplendent with life. Others are stillborn because they were cursed with too few or too many dimensions or with physics incompatible with the formation of stars and galaxies. An infinite number of exact replicas of ours, but more, but infinitely more are only near replicas. Oh my God, it's fucking just crazy. Now the fourth part. We're almost done with this. This is heavy stuff. I know we're almost, we are almost out of it. The fourth part of this overview uh, addresses dark energy. The discovery of dark energy in the nineties marked a time of reckoning for string theorists. Either their theory had to account for this newfound force that was pushing space time apart, or they had to admit the string theory may never describe the universe we live in. In 1998, astronomers hunting halfway across the universe for ebbing light of exploded stars announced they had discovered evidence that the universe's expansion is speeding up. With every passing year, new experiments confirm this result. Expansion is accelerating. Uh, For that to be true, an elusive force physicists had come to refer as dark energy must be real. Einstein predicted the existence of dark energy in 1917 when he applied his general theory of relativity to the structure of space-time. He needed a hypothetical force to prevent the universe from collapsing, so he invented a repulsive space-filling energy you know, uh, called the cosmological constant, or lambda, When some astronomers discovered in the 20s that the universe is expanding, Einstein realized that Lambda was no longer necessary and he scrapped the idea, calling it his biggest blunder, right? Not the the wife cousin. But Einstein may have been too hard on himself. Today, most physicists think that dark energy, the cosmological constant, and Lambda all refer to a repulsive energy infused in empty space itself. Quantum mechanics predict that the spontaneous creation and annihilation of ghostly virtual particles generate an anti-gravitational force whose influence grows with the age and size of the universe. When astronomers were able to measure the lambda experimentally, they found it had a positive but bewilderingly, but bewilderingly tiny value that was about a trillion, 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 trillion times weaker than the theory predicted. Uh, uh, equally perplexing, lambda's tiny value lay just within the narrow range able to support life. If it were much larger, the universe would expand too quickly for galaxies and stars to form. Smaller, creation would collapse back to a point. Theoretical physics was upside down because of this experimental discovery, Kalush said. The first tentative steps toward resolving what came to be known as the cosmological constant problem was taken in 2000 by theorists Joseph Polstinsky of the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Raphael Busso, Stanford postdoc and a former student of Stephen Hawking. The pair published a paper showing that string theory could give rise to an enormous number of unique vacuum states, vastly more than previously thought. The vacuum state is what remains if you remove all of the particles from the universe, Andre Linde explained. The properties of a vacuum determine what its particles will look like and what the physics of their interactions will be if it, if it were populated. Each vacuum described, in essence, a potential universe with its own singular take on particles and forces. It was already known that string theory had lots of solutions, Susskind said. But their paper showed that it could have a vast number and among them could be solutions that had these rare traits like a very low cosmological constant. But despite offering tantalizing hints of a string theory of string theory universes that could accommodate dark energy, Polchinski and Boso, now at the University of California, Berkeley, stopped short of actually finding one. They had a correct but imprecise collection of arguments for this diversity. Suskind said they had no real examples of it. The first reasonably example was discovered by theoretical physicist Eva Silverstein professor at Stanford Institute for Theoretical Physics, who was motivated by dark energy's discovery to search for a mechanism that could create a so-called de Sitter solution to string theory. De Sitter solutions named after the Dutch astronomer represent expanding universes with a positive cosmological constant similar to our own. Silverstein wanted to know if a solution exited existed in string theory that was compatible with the universe that astronomers actually observe. Up to the point, or up to that point, 
String theorists had focused on solutions for universes with a negative lambda called anti-de Sitter space-time. He said, the Sitter solutions are more complex, and until the discovery of dark energy, no one bothered. Some even argued that the Sitter solutions weren't possible in string theory, and it remained a complicated subject. But these no-go arguments did not consider the leading contributions to the potential energy in string theory. I picture these people trying to get grant money. Like, I'm amazed <laughs> these guys are able to get government grant money, you know, to, to work on these things. Because like, unless you're so deep in this, who the fuck understands? Like they could be talking about anything. I just picture like this, uh, that quote was from Silverstein. I picture them talking to some politician or Congress about why they need this money and saying all this shit. Like you might as well just go to Congress and be like, hey guys, here's, here, listen, this, uh, we got to figure out some more stuff about the universe. We, we, uh, we found 47 Sasquatches in a primordial void that we need to, we need to add, find out what kind of fleas are on their fur. Because if we can do that, then we can jump to what's called the gremlin force field uh, parallel universe where the cowboy uh, pigeon chicken hats, they can also be added to nine foxes that sing songs on every Thursday uh, of the third week in January of every fourth or third year. And then if you multiply that by 3.75, that is what, and eventually the Congress is like, yeah, okay, 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 stop, stop talking. How much do you need? Billion? All right, will you shut the fuck up? If we give you a billion dollars, will you go away for 10 years and not ever talk to any of us about any of that again? Uh-huh. All right, get out of here. Go on now, get. <laughs> that stuff is ridiculous to me. I mean, important. But Jesus Christ, this shit is dense. Uh, in 2001, Silverstein published a paper. We're almost done. Which she proposed a uh, mechanism for combining various ingredients from string theory, extra dimensions, fluxes, and so on in specific ways to create a desitter model. She also predicted that any desitter solutions would need to contain certain features. She argued, for example, that the path to positive lambda was indirect and would require making a negative contribution first. One thing I pointed out early on is that negative contributions to the potential energy in the right place to produce a local dip in it would be needed, Silverstein said, and that this role could be played by orientifolds, which are defects in string theory's extra dimensions that have controlled amount of negative energy and then Silverstein's hunch would soon be proven correct. And now for a final look into the multiverse, the landscape. My brain is about to fucking just die right now. <laughs> Every time I would go over these notes, I'd think I'm going to get it the next time. Uh -uh. Stanford physicists continue to survey the peaks and valleys of the string theory landscape that they helped discover nearly two decades ago. Even as critics say that the theory is ultimately untestable. Yeah, of course it is. Nearly two decades after its proposal, the string theory landscape remains divisive among physicists. That makes me feel a little bit good, at least. In the beginning, there were people who hated it. Some hated it even now and more strongly than before, Andre Lindea said. The idea that our universe must have laws suitable for life is called the anthropic principle. It's a notion many physicists despise. One U.S. Nobel laureate called it defeatist and dangerous and said it smells of religion and intelligent design. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. And according to Leonard Susskind, there's no better theory at present. He says, it's not enough to say, I hate the idea. You have to say, here's a better idea. And no one has had one. This concept of string theory landscape has led to something called modern inflationary cosmology. Uh, this project, a multi-institution in Denver, Endeavor, funded by the Simons Foundation and coordinated by Eva Silverstein. A goal of the project will be to study the primordial seeds of galaxies and other cosmic structures for clues about physics in the early universe. According to inflationary cosmology, the early universe was filled with fields such as inflation field and gravitational field, and some string theory influenced models of inflation developed by Silverstein and others. Fluctuations in these fields were frozen into patterns resembling triangles, rectangles, and other shapes. 
which were preserved as the universe expanded and the fluctuations blossomed into galaxies and other cosmic structures. These patterns are non-Gossinites, uh, Gossinian, Gossin, oh my God, Gossa, out of whatever. It's G-A-U-S-S-I-A-N-I-T-I-E-S. Don't fucking send your emails. It's just pronounced, I don't fucking care right now. Uh, these patterns could appear as peculiar groupings of galaxies and galaxy clusters in telescope surveys or as deviations in the predicted number and type of black holes present in any given region of space. Discovering or constraining these non-G things in as systematic a way as possible will improve our knowledge of conditions in the universe roughly 14 billion years ago and help us distinguish between vastly different models of inflation, Silverstein said. Meanwhile, the science of dark energy continues to evolve as part of astrophysics, independent of the question of whether or not dark energy is Einstein's cosmological constant. Experiments like European Space Agency's upcoming Euclid space mission and the ground-based Large Synoptic Survey Telescope being assembled in Chile will measure the acceleration of the universe with unprecedented precision and chart the history of cosmic expansion over the past 10 billion years. But this is all the scientific study and really hard to understand for the average person, fucking mumbo jumbo, really point to the existence of a multiverse. Distinguished South African professor George F.R. Ellis and many others say no. The multiverse idea is provable neither by observation nor as an implication of well-established physics. It may be true, can never be shown to be true, is what the, think, the thinking from a lot of people is right now. It does have great explanatory power. It provides, it provides an empirically-based rationalization for fine-tuning, developed from known physical principles, but one must distinguish between explanation and prediction. Successful scientific theories make predictions that can be tested. The multiverse, multiverse theory cannot be tested. If it can't be scientifically tested, is the concept of the multiverse really science? Not exactly. To classify it as science, according to many scientists, it is dangerous because it weakens the criteria needed to scientifically prove something and sets a bad precedent. This abandons the key principle that has led to the extraordinary success of science, the ability to truly empirically prove something. Detractors of multiverse theory believe the appropriate statement we can make is not multiverses exist or that multiverses have been proved to exist or even that multiverses can be proved uh, you know, uh, to have ever existed, but rather multiverses are a useful explanatory hypothesis. 20th century mathematician, popular science writer Martin Gardner put it this way in 2003, there is not the slightest shred of reliable evidence that there is any universe other than the one we are in. No multiverse theory has so far provided a prediction that can be tested. As far as we can tell, universes are not as plentiful as even two blackberries. That's what he thinks. So dear Mead Sack, does your brain feel broken? If so, I'm with you. I do thank the Patreon <laughs> spaces for making this show possible. They get to vote on two topics a month. I'm not going to lie to you. I was really hoping this topic was not going to win. That being said, I am glad it did in the sense that even if I don't understand a lot of this, um, I do understand some of it. I understand more of it because I looked into it. And it is fascinating truly to think about. I, I hope I got it right as much as I could. A lot of information to try and distill Make entertaining, difficult to comprehend, tough to decide what to include, uh, you know, um, what to what to exclude. It, it, it's a, and it's a subject that doesn't just confound me; it does confound even the most brilliant of minds. So, if, hopefully, that makes you feel better if it's confusing to you. I watched a 2014 YouTube video trying to get my head around a lot of this of the Stanford professor Andre Linde, right? His wife, Stanford professor uh, Renata Kalush, and it's this video where another uh, physicist reveals the results of a recent experiment, you know, recent in 2014, that proved a lot of Linde's beliefs in string theory 
And he almost started crying. Like he was just, he just hugged this guy. He didn't seem like a guy who's normally a hugger. He was blown away. And he talked about how he'd been wondering for decades if the revelation he'd had late that one summer night in 1981 that we talk, talked about when he woke up his wife for not, for not to share, he'd been wondering for decades if it actually was correct. He admitted to doubting himself most of the time, thinking that maybe he was crazy. And this is one of the top, you know, physicist minds in the world. Robert Lawrence Kuhn, the creator, writer, and host of Closer to Truth, a public TV series, online resource that features the world's leading thinkers, uh, exploring humanity's deepest questions, a guy with a PhD in anatomy and brain research from UCLA, a master of science from MIT. He wrote in 2015, quote, since childhood, I've obsessed about existence. What is existence? What's the extent of existence? What's the purpose of existence? Now, six decades on, having explored many things, I'm no sure and feeling no smarter, but I continue my pursuit. So if you feel like the more you look into the nature of the universe, this type of stuff, the multiverse, the less you know, you are far from not alone. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I reach when I reach really high and try to understand things that, uh, you know, feel like maybe they're just outside the grasp of my intellectual ability to comprehend, I end up feeling like a, like a dummy in moments. And, and to feel better, you know, after delving into mind after mind after mind of uh, minds that are arguably stronger than my own mind, I, I, like to, I like to go the other way. And check out what people, you know, with a brain similar to mine are thinking to feel better about myself. And so let's all feel better. And uh, right now I feel like one of the idiots of the internet. Let's see what other idiots think about the multiverse. Idiots of the internet. All right, today's comments come from uh, underneath an eight-minute video titled String Theory Explained, What is the True Nature of Reality? Published on YouTube on March 1st, 2018. Over 13 million views, over 16,000 comments. And I think about, uh, you know, 15,500 of the comments are, are references to the long-running Big Bang Theory sitcom. But then there's some others. <laughs> and they made me feel better. And late last night when I was finishing this stuff up, uh, it just made me laugh. Prem Prakash posts, thanks. Now I'm even more confused. Exactly. So many other posts, variations of that statement. Uh, Yao Ling or Liang posts, me at the beginning of the video. I can't wait to learn about the true nature of reality. Me at the end of the video. I can't wait to learn about the nature of reality. That made me laugh so fucking hard for whatever reason I read about it last night. Yeah, exactly. So much of this stuff was like, wait, what? Uh, Marwin Tolentino posts, I'm now officially stupid. <laughs> I didn't understand a thing about string theory. I get it. I spent hours rereading this stuff. Ugh. And I often feel the exact same way. Uh, to hinder Singh post, this video passed through my brain at the speed of light. Well done. Best speed of light reference I came across in the comments. Olivia L posted, me before this video. I'm going to learn stuff today. Me after this video. Uh, huh? Yeah. Diago Almeida posts, <laughs> this video is like a huge kick in the ass to all the time I spent at a university. Uh-huh. Millennium Bricks posted, this taught me nothing about guitar playing. Right, well done. I see what you did there. Good job, Millennium Bricks. Uh, Rowan Jeffrey posts, I'm the perfect amount of high for this. That's what I messed up. That's what I should have done. I should have got high to do the research that I definitely should have got high to try and do this suck, uh, you know, to record it. Uh, Bob Aloni, Homeo Sapiens posts, why did this come up when I was searching for Boney M reviews? Frowny face. I love how random that one is. I love the sad emoji at the end. 
He just wanted to see, you guys. He just wanted to find out what people were saying about Boney M, you know, about his music. And he ended up having his brain stomped on. And then one more, Large Coke doesn't give a shit who makes fun of him for going lowbrow under a highbrow video, posting about, uh, well, uh, literal shit. He wrote, technically taking a dump after eating spaghetti counts as string theory. Mm-hmm. My brain feels like it took a dump in my own skull. Uh, thank you, fellow idiots of the internet, for making me feel less alone. Idiots of the internet. 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 You know, outside of a few sections where I feel like you have either studied this stuff for many years or, or just not going to sink in, I, I do feel, I don't want to be negative, I do feel like I learned a lot. I really do. And, I, and it just made me contemplate a lot about the universe we live in. It is interesting to think that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, theologians, scientists, all of us, none of us really fucking know why we're floating around on this big rock. It's fascinating to think about, you know, uh, people devoting their lives to figure that out. And they've been doing that for centuries and, and they are learning things. They are making advancements. We're seeing farther and farther out into space with these telescopes and, you know, equations, uh, you know, are, are being crunched constantly to determine the, the, the nature of the cosmos. Fascinating to think about what we might figure out someday. You know, I think what I'm mostly going to take away from this episode that a lot of smart people uh, think a multiverse is not only possible, but probable. That's just incredible to think about. So crazy to think about how many other worlds and how many other versions of us there could be. I was a huge, huge Twilight Zone fan as a kid. And this all definitely feels very, very Twilight Zone. Is there a universe where serial killer Andre Chikatilo liked to wrestle but not kill? Where he didn't have a soft shame card? What is big deal? I have rock hard penis. I'm cool gym teacher. Get fuck out of here. I was evil. Of course I stab and kill and jerks of shame cock. I kill in every universe. Is there a universe where serial killer Ed Kemper got along great with his mom and never cut her head off? Mother, I love you very much. Look what I put on a stick. Some fruit. It's a fruit bouquet, mother. Is there a universe where there's always enough diddle for Juju? Too little, plenty of diddle, pootie. Maybe in another universe, Albert Fish really was a big-time producer. Showbiz. I tell you, in Hollywood. Maybe he didn't kill anyone but did spank leading actresses and consensually enjoyed some piping hot apple cider and fresh out of the shoot peanut butter. Time now for Top 5 The Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, we stand on the shoulders of giants, hundreds, thousands of mathematicians, cosmologists, physicists, other scientific minds have made up our substantial knowledge of the universe and new brains continually build upon that knowledge. How much farther can it all go? Hopefully it's so much farther. Push it forward, Meatsack. Push it all forward. Number two, while based in a lot of science, multiverse theory is not a provable science. There are many hypotheses, but no one has been able to test, falsify, or prove the multiverse theory. In that sense, it's technically not even a theory, a provable scientific fact, but a hypothesis, actually a collection of many hypotheses, as we learned today. Famous scientists like Hugh Everett, Max Tiegmark, Michio Kaku, Neil deGrasse Tyson, all seem to be enthusiastic about the multiverse theory, while other equally brilliant scientists like Pale Davies, uh, Adam Frank, and David Gross seem to think it's dog shit on fire. Number three, cosmology can be complicated. We just scraped the surface of this stuff. So much math, so many massive brains. Number four, cosmologist Tycho Brahe 
had some seriously unique experiences. My God, he lost his nose in a nerd sword duel, wore a brass nose for over 30 years, had his pet elk die when he got drunk and fell down the stairs and died from holding his pee so he wouldn't insult the king. Number five, something new. Allow me to quickly acknowledge that this topic uh, likely won the topic vote because the concept of a multiverse is culturally referenced a ton in various forms of media, right? From C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, The Witch, The Wardrobe, uh, to Jonathan Jonathan Swift Gulliver's, uh, or oh my God, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels to, the, I feel like my brain's shutting down right now. Gulliver's Travels to the Wizard of Oz and Peter Pan, some form of our world being one of many is all over sci-fi and fantasy books, movies, TV shows, video games, and comic books. So many movies reference some type of multiverse, right? From the Matrix, just about every Marvel film to Phineas and Ferb, the movie, Across the Second Dimension, uh, Star Trek, right? References the multiverse all the time in their movies. Uh, Doctor Who and Stranger Things uses it as a very important feature to their plot lines. The TV show Lost was based around the idea uh, of a multiverse. You know, even the horror adventure shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the long-running TV series Supernatural use it often. Multiverses all over cartoons like Futurama and Dragon Ball Z, central to the plot of the popular show Rick and Morty and to the uh, new Netflix cartoon The Midnight Gospel based on the podcast Drunk, uh, Duncan, the Duncan Trussell Experience. Comic book characters like The Flash and Superman constantly use parallel universes to drive the story as do video games like Portal, Minecraft, Super Mario Brothers, The Legend of Zelda, The Elder Scrolls, Half-Life, and so many more. And most of them just barely touch on it. And they barely touch on it because, as you see, when you dig deep, whoo, you, you need uh, a, a lot of uh, very, a very specific kind of education to properly understand. But, you know, they, they, they look into it because it's just interesting to think about, uh, you know, how this actually could be true. It's, it's very hard to comprehend, but very interesting just to think about. To think about some other version of you out there somewhere maybe kicking so much fucking ass, making all the right decisions. Or maybe that's you in this universe. That's probably more fun to think about. Maybe uh, you're living your best life. Your best you is right here now. Maybe things are about to go incredible, uh, you know, incredibly well for you. And all those other yous, you know, they can fantasize about being this you. I like that. I like that. I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to think. You know, eat your heart out, other Dan Cummins. Sorry, your reality isn't as good as this one, right? Sure, I've made some poor choices, but damn it, I wouldn't trade my life for, for any of yours other Dan Cummins's. Ugh. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The multiverse uh, has been sucked as much as I can suck it. Jesus Christ. That shit fucking blew my mind over and over again. I had the most moments. This in time travel, but this one was more. I tried to take a better attitude into this one. <laughs> I feel like I did the best I could with the topic that I would have never picked on my own. Um, but again, Glad, glad I, you know, added it for a variety. Uh, definitely did my best. I'm sure a lot of people who are very deep into the subject are going to, <laughs> uh, you know, look at this one and be like, wow, no. And they're going to be angry. You know, some, maybe some leading physicists are like, no, that's not correct. That's not actually how you say that, you know, correctly. You know, but also, I also know that if those people uh, created podcasts, fucking seven nerds would listen. No one else would care, which not trying to denigrate what they do. It's very important what they do. It's just very hard for other people to understand. And I will say that's one thing. Uh, like the one guy, you know, Hugh Everett, not being into his kids. I, I feel like that's a, a common problem of people. It's, it's like a curse when people are so smart. Like, like I think about how we, with this audience, with the cult of the curious, we get frustrated with the idiots of the internet. To somebody like Hugh Everett, 99.9999% of the world are idiots of the internet. 
I get why they're eccentric as much as I can in that way where how, what a, what a horrible way to go through life. The burden those people bear that are able to think about things like this, the, the, the level of frustration they must have with most of humanity, <laughs> where they're just constantly in their head be like, nope, ah, wrong, no, because they just have this special gift and they have this brain that is, you know, so much further along. I think about like with athletes, you know, every once in a while you have this uh, athlete who just blows away the, their, their field. Like I think about like, okay, um, take like a, a Serena Williams in tennis, right? She's fucking for years, just dominated every, like I'm not even a big tennis fan, but I would watch little highlights of her matches with people and just feel sorry for the opponent. They were just getting, you know, another top-ranked professional tennis player getting demoralized, just getting abused, you know, because, yeah, you know, works really hard. She works really hard, but also just blessed with this unbelievable athletic talent. And then there's these people like the scientists we talked about today, just born with these unbelievable minds and then combine combining that with years and years and years, thousands and thousands of hours of very specific scientific uh, study. And then they try to have to explain the most unexplainable topics to the masses. Oh, that would not be fun. That would not be, uh, that would be a very tough task to, to do that. So, you know, for those of you who have that ability, thank you. And uh, hope, hope you're able to tolerate the rest of us uh, somewhat. Oh man, I'm gonna be thinking about this one randomly off and on for a long while. Uh, thank you to everybody who makes this show possible. Thank you to the all, sign, uh, all seen eyes of the cult for helping Liz Hernandez run the Cult of the Curious Facebook page, um, the private, you know, Cult of the Curious page. Thank you, Liz, for being in charge of the Bojangles emails. Thanks, Beefsteak, for, for being so fun in the Time Suck Discord channel that you can access via the Time Suck app. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Uh, big thank you to the Time Suck team. Queen of the Suck, uh, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Pacey, the Bit Elixir app design crew, Logan and Kata Spicy Club, running badmagicmerch.com and socials, and the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Uh, he, well, without being able to lean on Zach, I don't even, I don't even know how I would have got this topic done. Also, thank you to the many time suckers who send gifts into the suck dungeon every week. Really enjoyed the bourbon based barbecue sauce sent in by Beard Barbecue, the veteran owned small batch barbecue company ran by a time sucker. Lindsay and I marinated some chicken in it, grilled it the other night. So tasty. Next week, we're talking about something I understand. <laughs> Not like from the inside. Thank God. But uh, I, I do like true crime. And next week, we're, uh, we're stuck in serial-killing evil duo Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Started the research a week ago, and man, I got pulled in. It's a dark, insane story about uh, a doomsday prepper creating a hidden underground torture room where investigators think at least 25 people spent their final hours. Like Bob Berdella, the Kansas City butcher, Leonard Lake loved The Collector. He loved the book that inspired the movie that Bob saw. He wanted sex slaves. He got them. And he had a partner, Charles Ng, fellow Marine with a history of kleptomania. And boy, these two. The two of them would uh, torture a lot of people. They were certain the world was going to end. They wanted to do a lot of evil shit before Armageddon struck. And they did. They did a lot of terrible stuff in Northern California. And I don't understand for the life of me how these two aren't far more infamous than they are. These two make Ed Kemper almost seem like a, like a decent dude. Uh, back to true crime next week. It's been a it's been a nice escape for, from the real world for me lately. I hope it provides a nice bit of escapism for you. Nice reminder of shit, uh, how it could be uh, so much so much worse. And time now for today's time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. All right, we got some good ones. We always got some good ones. Uh, 
maybe especially good though today. Uh, first up, uh, a Cummins Law update from a kick-ass sack Jeff in San Antonio. Jeff writes, hey Dan, well, I had a backdoor instance of Cummins Law the other day. I was cruising through Reddit, reading posts, and generally, uh, you know, trying to fight off COVID, COVID sanity. Um, my nine-year-old daughter is, of course, home and working on schoolwork. She calls me over to look at something that we decided to print. Being the super helpful kid that she is, she walks over to wake up my computer and says, peanut butter? I'm like, oh, shit. I had mindlessly stopped scrolling over a time suck post that was a cross post from the serial killer subreddit. She was very confused but suffered no lasting trauma. I was about 10 seconds, or it was about 10 seconds, and she only read the title and not the article. So shout out to Redditor Timesucker U slash Baron Von Sleeps for invoking Cummins Law into our home. Strong work. Hail Lucifina and hail Nimrod. Hail Brisket. <laughs> hail Brisket. Jeff in San Antonio. Uh, P.S. Great appearance on the Jason Ellis show yesterday. At least this time you actually mentioned the name of the podcast. The last appearance in L.A., you talked all about it, but never once said the name. It plays on the Ellis Replay channel every so often and drives me nuts. Rehail Nimrod. <laughs> uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, glad your young daughter didn't actually find out the meaning of peanut but butter. Showbiz. Uh, and that's cool that some uh, peanut but butter is getting smeared around on Reddit. I didn't even know about that. I didn't even know about that subreddit. Uh, also, thanks about Jason Ellis. Uh, yeah, Zoom crashed towards the end, and we had, to, we had to cut it short a bit. But those guys are so fun to riff with, man. They'll talk about anything. Go anywhere. Uh, and now an excellent piece of strong disagreement coming in from top shelf time sucker, James Maddox, who writes, Dan, I believe, <laughs> I love this. Dan, I believe you have a good heart and that you want to do good, but motherfucking God, fucking damn it. You make it fucking hard to remain a space lizard sometimes. <laughs> uh, my latest test was during the Children of Thunder Suck, where you said you were debating joining the protest against social distancing guidelines. Admittedly, every time you treat the Trump cult with kid gloves, it makes me want to destroy things. I get that you may have leanings that may align with some of the ideas of that group, but when it comes to ideas that are flat-out idiotic, like those of the COVID protesters, it is so hard to believe that any seeker of truth would give these attention seekers a shred of credibility. Are we damaging the economy? Yes. But we are not doing it on a fucking lark. At the time of this writing, nearly 60,000 deaths due to the virus, and that's with social distancing guidelines in effect. People are dying. The medical field is risking their lives and their sanity. And these protesters are holding up signs about haircuts and screaming at medical personnel. It's sad. It's disappointing. It's uninformed. It's dangerous. Please don't give ignorance an opportunity to take any stake in the conversation, uh, especially when those stakes are so high. Normally, I would tamper down the need to send such a one-sided message, but we've been housing one of our best friends who is a nurse in our hospital's COVID section. She is staying in our basement because it has independent access, a fridge, and a full bathroom, and also because she's quarantining herself to keep her wife and one-year-old son safe from contracting the virus should something go wrong at work. Being so close to her loneliness during this time has made me less movable on the subject of downplaying this pandemic. I love what the Time Suck team aspires to do with this podcast. I think the message is great and the show is entertaining. You've delivered much-needed information and perspective so many times that I give back uh, to the show with word of mouth recommendations and pitching in as a space lizard along with the, the occasional merch buy. Shout out to Spicy Club. That affection isn't changed by the moments that we disagree, but sometimes it puts my resolve through the fucking ringer. Love you all. Keep on sucking, James. <laughs> First off, James, I love how you do phrase this with love the show and then, you know, in the, in the strong disagreement. And I love your ability to disagree, but not leave the conversation. It's very admirable. It's very needed now. Uh, so that's first. Uh, second, huge thanks to the nurse staying with you right now and shout out to all of, uh, you know, the medical care professionals 
on the front lines, doing what they do, risking so much to keep us all safe right now. And, and third, allow me to explain where I was coming from. While a lot of the protesters I've seen needlessly, you know, uh, bring guns to the protests and hold signs that say dumb shit like false flag operation, that's not giving the protests a good look. I, yeah, I see that. I'm aware of that. But I also do think there is a validity to some of what they are, uh, or what some of them are angry about. And let me explain this. Initially, the shelter-in-place orders made sense to be put in place everywhere, I think. Air on the side of caution, I get that. Yes, it is something new. It's not just the flu. I, I get that. I talked about that in the in the pandemic episode. But after a month, you know, month and a half with a lot of new data coming in, it became clear that the virus was not as lethal as some initially believed it to be. Uh, it, it was clear that the curve had flattened in many places. It became clear that hospitals in certain areas of the nation were not being close to overrun. I know they are or were in some places. I also know they were not in many places. Did New York City get hit very hard? Absolutely. Can a contagious disease spread a lot faster in New York City than, say, in Sheridan, Wyoming? Yes. Very different way of urban living compared to a, a much more rural way of living. And that is, to me, what some people were mad about. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho has not got hit hard by the virus, uh, you know, not compared to like a place like New York City, but has been hit hard by shelter-in-place mandates, as have a lot of other places. You know, and if people in a smaller, not hit hard area like, or hit as hard, excuse me, uh, area like CDA want to risk their health by opening their businesses in a free country to save their economic future in an area with very few cases of the virus, I think that there is an argument to their side there. It's it's not uh, just people mad that they can't get a haircut or a tuna melt at their local diner. It's also people losing their business or losing their job and worried that they might also then lose their home or lose the ability to send their kid to college, you know, and a lot of other horrible consequences. And And I would think it was weird if at some point people in those situations didn't push back and didn't protest. Uh, I, I hope that makes sense. I just try to do my best to see an argument from numerous sides. And I feel like we live right now in a nation of extremes, you know, and it, and I feel like that's an easy place to go mentally where you can go, you know, on one side and be like, this is all stupid in this instance. And, you know, this is fucking ridiculous. And why are we doing any of this? And that's crazy. And that's extreme. And you can also go to the other side and be like, no, we should shelter in place for until and no one ever gets sick again. <laughs> and that's insane. Um, I try to look somewhere in the middle. I hope that makes sense. And I don't think that your side is insane. I think you had a lot of validity to what you're saying. Uh, more excellent disagreement. I do love that. Uh, coming in now from another super sucker, Donnie, who writes, Hi, Dan. First, I want to say I've been a huge fan of your comedy for years. Didn't know you had a podcast until you were already a couple years into it. Found it. Binged every episode in two weeks. Holy shit. Uh, being a mailman, listening to podcasts is a huge part of my day. Even started one of my own out called Adulting with Donnie. But you can leave that out. I'm not sure why I included it. You included it because it's your podcast. Yeah, include it. Let people know. That's a great name, Donnie. Uh, anyways, in the Children of Thunder cult, around 33 minutes in, you poke some fun at preppers, talking about how they've wasted their time. I disagree, sir. If you're looking strictly at the wackadoodles that were on the show Doomsday Preppers, I see where you're misled. But a lot of people are into prepping and don't have a bunker. The current situation this country is in is a great example of why prepping is important. People who prepared for years for the possibility that grocery store shelves could be empty for a month or two aren't out now panic buying anything they can get their hands on. I know you've talked to me before about how you own guns. Are any of them considered self-defense guns? You know, uh, like a semi-automatic handgun or a modern sporting rifle? If so, you could be considered a prepper because you're being prepared to something happen. Uh, uh, yes. And and yes, I have uh, I have two semi-automatic handguns. And I, and I do have, you know, uh, you know, 
some self-defense weapons that you can't be justified any other way. I bought a Mossberg tactical pump action 12 gauge to be totally honest, just because I think it looks fucking super cool compared to other guns I could have got. So, you know, in a way, I guess, yeah, I'm a prepper. Uh, I could I could keep going on with examples of why preppers aren't wackadoodles, but I think you get the point. Thanks for the amazing educational content every week. I was a spacer for a while, but due to some financial issues, needed to cut money uh, here and there. Hopefully I will again one day. Oh yeah, thank you for that, Donnie. Take care, stay safe. Hail Lucifina and keep on sucking. Well, thank you, Donnie. And you, yeah, you bring up a good point. When I say prepper, I'm referring to people like the people on the TV show you mentioned, which is a very entertaining show. Uh, people having their kids, you know, run drills to get to their underground steel bunker you know, time before the bombs hit every week or after the bombs hit. People who have uh, moved their family out to the middle of nowhere specifically because they truly believe the end times are almost upon us and they are actively preparing for the apocalypse. It is the focal point of their life, this preparation. You know, that to me is fucking crazy. Uh, people who have a big pantry full of lots of essentials just in case shit gets weird for a bit, you know, having some loose plan, that, that to me is just being a good planner. So I, so I guess in that sense, I'm the same kind of prepper uh, as you. You know, uh, we have a lot of stuff in the garage. We have a lot of stuff in the freezer and we weren't panicked when things, uh, you know, ran out of the store shelves. Uh, now, and thank you for sending that in. Very intense Bob Berdella update coming in from one of his victim's relatives. Awesome meat sack Ash writes, hey there. I'm a longtime listener. Love your podcast. This week's episode was a rough one for me. You know, referring to obviously the Bob Berdella uh, podcast. I'm the niece of Todd Stoops. He was my mother's baby brother. And although I was born after he was murdered, I've come to learn Todd was funny beautiful and strong-willed. I've come to learn that he struggled with addiction. And one thing I have to clear up is that my uncle was not a prostitute. Not that there was anything wrong with that, but I have to get it off my chest that Todd came to know that evil motherfucker when he was court-ordered to see him for addiction counseling. You read that right. Somehow that motherfucker was put on the list of approved counselors with no education, addiction of his own, and he was an active drug dealer. Uncle Todd was literally court-ordered into the arms of a serial murderer. Crazy enough, my other uncle was a homicide detective on the case from my dad's side. After the murders were uncovered, there was a court reporter that suggested he had more victims because she connected the dots on how Uncle Todd met him. She happened to be in court when he was sentenced to those counseling sessions. She tried to get them to look into every male that was sentenced to sessions with this asshole and was railroaded. Back then, it was easier due to homophobia to just button up this stain on our city and not dig deeper. I've talked to my family about it, and we are having open dialogues for the first time in a long time. My entire life, uh, this has been like a dark family secret, like this piece of shit is fucking Voldemort, uh, he who should not be named. It makes so much more sense about a lot of things, uh, like how my mother developed such a debilitating drug habit. She kicked him out of her house before he went missing. A fight was the last she heard of him. After listening, I did some digging, and I have to say I was not prepared for what I found in those Polaroids. My brother... Uh, is a dead ringer for Uncle Todd. And what I saw in those images was like watching him go through it. I think the mystery surrounding this case is what got me so interested in true crime to begin with. Because for me and my family, this isn't something we view as a horror story. This isn't a hypothetical. This is a real person that did these things to real people. And our family has become hyper aware of the evil this world has to offer. I've wanted to suck on this for a while. And as rough as it was, I'm glad I listened. Sorry if this email is all over the place. My brain is mashed potatoes at this point but I really do appreciate you and the team. I want to have one hell of a time sucker update for you. You can find it below. Thanks for what you do and satisfying all of our fucked up interests, Ash. Well, thank you, Ash. That is intense. I can only imagine how rough that topic was for you. Uh, and thank you for the link about your grandma 
suing Bob Berdella for $5 billion and winning. And yeah, we all know that she didn't get that amount, but she did it uh, so she could collect the $50,000 she had in a trust. I hope she got that money. Interesting that he may have had, you know, many more victims as well. Such an evil piece of shit. Yeah, these people are real, too real. Uh, the hurt they cause is real. You know, they're worse than just about any horror movie monster. Uh, so Hail Nimrod Ash, thank you for sending that in again. Uh, another inside scoop, uh, Bob Berdella update coming in from another awesome longtime sucker, Deanna, or Deanna Marino, uh, whose art professor at the University of Delaware was an ex-classmate of Bob's in Kansas City. Uh, Deanna and I were working on a, a project a while back for Time Suck, and she texted me about this. She first uh, gives us some information here to understand uh, the update, writing about an art project of Bob's, you know, way back when he's at the Kansas City Art Institute. Uh, and she says that, um, you know, to understand this art project you put on, you have to understand casting. And casting is a, is a process where a flammable object is packed tightly buried in sand. Molten metal is poured over it. The metal's heat burns away the organic matter of the object. And when it cools, creates a metal cast in the exact shape of the void left in the sand. Bob did this with live chickens. And then, Jesus, uh, Deanna said that everyone at school, you know, her professor told her greatly disliked Bob. Her professor joked about another art student at school uh, murdering someone around that time, but I couldn't find any details on it. Uh, and then she said, bizarre, bizarre. Uh, David said he and his now wife, her professor, went to the store once and talked with Bob about the fake heads he kept on a shelf. Fake is in quotes. He said everything was super expensive and creepy, so they only bought an ink print. And later after his arrest, the art community found out that some of the heads, bones, and personal items of the victims may have been on sale at the Bob's Bazaar. Yeek. Uh, yeah, that dude was one cruel piece of shit. I, I would have loved the end of his story to be uh, one of his victims tying him up and doing the same pain experiments on him, putting some bleach in his eyes, shocking his balls, seeing what they could shove up his ass. He was so unbelievably sadistic. Uh, now for a very sad and serious update from Top Shelf Sack, Juan Garcia. Juan writes, Hello, Dan, the man, bringer Bojangles. I had recently lost my younger brother Easter Sunday morning to the COVID-19 virus. He was 25 years old when he passed. What a sweet young boy he was. We miss him so much. I was wondering if you would be able to do a shout out for my brother, uh, Moises Garcia. Absolutely, man. Definitely shout out. Uh, from Moises Garcia. I'm a member of the Cult of the Curious on Facebook, and they have shown me nothing but love since I posted about him on there. So many people make me feel loved and not so alone since he passed. I haven't been myself, but thanks to you, I found my smile again in a time when I'm hurting the most. Your podcast cheered me up even though I still have tears in my eyes. You can make me smile through it all with your comedy and your podcasts. And I want to take some time to say thank you for, not, uh, for that. Nothing else I've, uh, I've tried has cheered me up or made me smile since my brother's passing. I know it's a long message but I needed to let you know and just simply say thank you from the bottom of my heart and uh, for helping me smile through it all, Juan. Man, damn Juan. Uh, so sorry. Uh, know that when I talk about protests, economic costs of the virus, I'm not blind to the pain it brings so many and to the cost, you know, so many endure because of this. Uh, all the deaths attributed to it are certainly very real. And I'm so sorry I took someone so close to you and somebody so young. Life's certainly not fair. You and your family were, were dealt a, a heavy, heavy hand. Uh, I hope you have so many good times to remember Moises by and, and he lives on to your memories and, and the memories of others who loved him. The amount of pain you're feeling speaks to how special he truly was. Uh, glad you're finding support. Glad you're finding humor here. Uh, big thank you to all the time suckers and space lizards who, who show so much love to the community in the Cult of the Curious Facebook group and elsewhere on Discord. 
you do more good than, than maybe you know. Hail Nimrod and, and condolences again, Juan. And sorry, brother. Uh, now let's end on a bit of humor with Kevin Deegan, another victim of Cummins Law. Uh, this one really cracked me up. So we end with a little bit of levity. Kevin writes, hey, Dan, my name's Kevin Deegan. And thank you for the pronunciation guide, by the way, Kevin. Uh, not on Kevin, for those of you who think I'm that stupid. <laughs> I'm dumb, but I'm not quite that dumb when it comes to pronouncing words. Uh, I had trouble with Deegan because it's, it's spelled D-E-G-N. And so he phonetically gave me a little phonetic reference. Uh, but anyway, hey, Dan, my name is Kevin Deegan. I literally just got Cummins Lodge so hard at the grocery store. I'm shopping for corn for a barbecue. Listen to the sex suck. I didn't notice anyone near me when all of a sudden you say, seems like a lot more women are getting their pussies licked. And then I noticed this very nice looking lady grabbing for an ear of corn. <laughs> then I see her looking mortified uh, as I try to silence my phone. Uh, she, oh wait, then I'm looking mortified trying to silence my phone. She being a polite person just gave me the most awkward smile I've ever seen. And then I scuttled away trying to stifle my laughter and immediately had to send this to you. So thanks. Uh, suck master general hail Safina. Kevin you can't listen to this shit on the speakerphone not the store you maniac <laughs> wonder how many people she told about that uh, maybe hearing it you know made her happy maybe she was sad you know you ever think about that maybe who knows maybe at least in you know one of the parallel universes where that happened she was sad thinking about how you know not enough people were licking pussies anymore and then she heard that and you know made her day She's like, oh, okay. I guess more places are getting licked after all. Maybe there's hope for me. I doubt it, but maybe. Hail Lucifina. And thank you for sending that in. Thanks for being awesome, uh, everybody. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's all for this week on Time Suck. New Scared to Death drops tomorrow night. Secret Suck on Thursday. My new special. It's out all over the place. Amazon Prime, you can watch it there and other places. You can listen on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora, more. Get out of here, devil. It's, it's, it's out there. Uh, don't get into any ner nerd uh, soil, sword, duel. Jesus Christ. Don't get into, I can't even talk. My mouth has stopped working about 30 minutes ago. Don't get into any nerd, sword, duels. Maybe if I talk like that all the time, I could say all of the words the way that I want to. Uh, try not to have an aneurysm thinking about the multiverse. And if you do make it into a parallel universe, please let us know how it's going. And, you know, keep on sucking. Mother, I love you very much. Look what I put on a stick, some fruit. Hey, mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.